Yes, hello, it's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. I just got back from New Orleans. As you can hear, that was a brass band playing down by the Mississippi River during the 4th of July, followed by fireworks. I was just there for a week. It was the first time I've ever been to New Orleans, and I love it. It is perhaps my new favorite city and certainly the most magical city I've ever visited in the United States. While I was there, I met up with today's guest who should need absolutely no introduction. It's Damian Eccles, a profound teacher of magic and author, writer about magic, and now a martial artist. This podcast has been a long time coming. We, of course, share a lot in common. We were both on the Midnight Gospel. We both teach magic, and we actually both share the same birthday, oddly enough. So astrology people can make of that what you will. This was the first time I'd met Damien in person, although we've been talking online for several years, and we got along great. I had a tremendous time with Damien. He's just a, a, one of the sweetest people I've met, and is just, just wonderful to spend time with. We sat down and had a two-and-a-half-hour conversation, and that's this podcast. This episode is kind of a different format because we agreed to double up. It was a podcast for this show, but it was also a live stream for his Patreon subscribers. You can check him out on Patreon. And so I was interviewing him, but he was also interviewing me. And we kind of go back and forth and just gush about magic for two and a half hours and uh, lots of other subjects. And I think you're really, really in for a great ride. You're really going to enjoy this. According to Damien, this is one of the last podcasts he's actually ever going to do uh, because I think he's, well, I'll let, I'll let you listen to him talk about that, but definitely go find him at his Patreon where you can continue to follow him and his teaching, which is, I completely vouch for. I think he's a phenomenally great teacher of magic. Everything that I've watched from him, uh, his, his stuff on YouTube is just, is just awesome. So highly recommended. Patreon.com slash Damien Eccles. Check him out there. And of course, you can check out the continuing and ever accelerating work of Magic.me, my online school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, which is quickly building uh, a large faculty of teachers, including myself, Lon Milo Duquette, Mickey Pellerano, and several more to come. You can find that at Magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And we teach everything there. We have classes on everything from Lon Milo Duquette's new masterclass on tarot, to financial astrology, to hermeticism, chaos magic, astral travel, eaching, you name it. If it is part of the magical universe, we've got a class on it there, and we're ever adding new ones and improving the content and the production quality and the website and lots and lots of exciting stuff to come into the future. So check that out now. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. I will see you in class. And with no further ado, at long last, here's Damien. Because it was like as soon as I walked in the door, we automatically started talking about a lot of really amazing conversation, conversational topics. So we were like, we better hurry up and get this on. So has it crossed your mind to leave Austin behind yet and move here? Yes, except <laughs> then the, uh, the hurricanes. 
That was that was actually actually why I learned how to drive is because you've got to be able to evacuate hurricanes at okay. a moment's notice. Yeah, yeah, that that would bum me out because I left California because it lights on fire every year, and like yeah. you just see everything burning from your window, and then like the air quality is awful, and Austin definitely does not have that issue. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I would do with regular hurricanes. Yeah, as long as you have advance notice and have your own car, you're usually okay. But it's also there's there's things you don't take into consideration or think about until like after you've experienced. Like you you have to keep your car filled with gas at all times because if a hurricane does start to come, there's going to be a rush for gas for people to get away, and every gas station in the city is going to be completely empty. Yeah. Well, that was like that. I mean, Cal LA was like that in the pandemic. Yeah. You got to think ahead. But yeah, I mean, like, I definitely want to spend a lot of time here. Um, but it's also like, it's also like, I'm kind of like, I feel like this might be like the first time's always free situation where I'm kind of walking around being like, oh, this is awesome. And then like the friends we were out with last night were like, yeah, you look like a tourist and you're going to get robbed. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so it's, I have a feeling like it's probably awesome until like some shit happens. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what do you want to talk about? I mean, I'm open for anything. You're, uh, um, I don't have like a, a conversational agenda. No here. agenda. Just, yeah. Just kind of like hanging out. Well, I think, I mean, just maybe even keeping up with the stuff we were talking about already. Mm -hmm. The Like you were talking about, what was the name of the book? The Crowley book? The Vision and the Voice. The Vision Anoki. and the Voice. Yeah. We were talking about that and he had asked like, um, did I read it? And I was saying, yeah, but or I tried to, but the thing with so much of Crowley stuff is I could not decipher it. You know, I couldn't yeah. make heads or tails out of it. And, and for me, so much of his stuff was like that. Like you don't understand what he's saying until after you experience it. Then yeah. it's like something happens and snaps into place. But you were talking about how you got so much out of that book. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I was saying for me, Vision in the Voice is the payload with Crowley. It's much, I think it's his best book. And I also think that he fell off drastically after that to the point where like for me, Crowley, like I, I do this exercise where I try to read everything he wrote in order and I've never been able to. The last time I did it, I started with all of his like god awful poetry when he was like 12, like all the way up to the vision of the voice. And that goes through basically the period where he was working with and in the Golden Dawn and the Golden Dawn system. And then, you know, he does Golden Dawn, he's doing Abramelin, that whole thing, the fall of the Golden Dawn happens. And then he goes with Neuberg out to the desert to do Enochian. And he considers that his initiation into the the inner order and the secret becoming a secret chief and magister templi and all of this and basically he sees that as i think this happens to a lot of people who go through magical orders too it's like he leaves the order and then he feels that he finds the true inner order through that yeah but um yeah i mean i first read that book in england in the early 2000s and I just thought it was the most profound. I didn't fully understand it, but I thought that it was the most profound, one of the most profound books of world spiritual literature, just on the beauty of the writing itself uh, ever. Um, and, but yeah, he falls off after that. I mean, there's like a lot of people have said, it's like, well, you know, he got into the triangle with Karanzan and let Karanzan possess him. And then he was never the same again. I think I don't necessarily believe that, but I think that he, uh, he definitely ran out of money after that and the drug drug started to take hold more. And then he, then he got his whole thing after that was OTO and sex magic. And that for me is cool, but it's not as interesting as the golden dawn system, yeah. which is not him. It's, you know, it's this older thing. But for me, the importance of that book is, is that 
um, it it updates basically. I just wrote, and then I'll stop talking. But I I just wrote the introduction for Lon Milo Duquette's Magic of Alistair Crowley book, and I was trying to say, well, at this point in my life, what do I say about Crowley? And I said the most important thing about Crowley beyond his personality is that he melded the best techniques of Western and Eastern magic. And I think that's still true, by the way, mm-hmm. like if you like his yoga instructions are phenomenal, phenomenal. He didn't come up with them. He got them from Alan Bennett, but he melded the best of West and East. And then he updated the cosmology from a geocentric to a heliocentric universe. Cause that had not, or, excuse me. Yeah. Heliocentric solar system, but a solar system, a conception of the, of reality where all stars are essentially gravitationally equal in their own orbits. Mm-hmm. So he he's the only person, as far as I know, he's the only person still to update magic, which as you know, as we were talking about, is a you know, cosmological stellar about the night sky, about the planets and the stars. But he updated it for how we understand the universe now. And I don't think anyone else has done that. So that that book is that's why that book is so important. Yeah, I think the thing I guess that I got the most out of out of all of Crowley's work, and this will seem almost like an insignificant tiny little thing, but it was actually like looking up the grade structure for the AA. Like if you look at like not only what you're supposed to be doing or learning for each grade that you pass through, but like he explains some of like what you're going to experience. And it, it you know, like we were talking about, about how these things are like flowery poetic metaphors it's not always what you think it's going to be like but after you go through it then you look at it and you're like oh that's what he was describing what you're describing like i always think like in magic now one of the like it's kind of gotten diluted to the point that all people seem to be doing are arguing about minutiae and other people's systems and other people's books and all of this kind of crap. Whereas like so much in magic to me, I'm seeing mirrored in martial arts. You know, when, when people reach a stage in martial arts where they're supposed to take everything they've learned, integrate it in a way, you know, they understand it to the core of their being. And then you turn it into something else. Like say, like Bruce Lee did Bruce Lee yeah. creating Jeet Kune Do. That's the same thing. Uh, yeah. I, did, I trained in some Jeet Kune Do. I think it's really interesting. It's like kind of chaos magic. Yeah, That's it's the really same cool. thing. Yeah, I think in magic, when you become a master, you do the same thing with magic that people like Bruce Lee did with martial arts. Like you may use elements of different systems. You have to rearticulate. Con- exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There will be like a unique spin on it. And I think that's the that's kind of the thing about, you know, in Hakma, it says mm. like one of the the signs of this grade is like you receive a word. Yeah. And, and this word is sort of like yep. the embodiment of everything that you have to teach and everything you've learned and the entirety of your philosophy and understanding of the universe and all that stuff, like condensed into one single word. That's the way you can tell Crowley reached. I agree that with level. that. And, and I think that on that point. All the words mean the same thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. it's like like I think that I basically think the lemma is Crowley's articulation of the Tao. Yes. Know, it's all the Tao. Yes, you know, and they, but he articulated it I think beautifully. I mean, I know people not Crowley, and obviously there are things that he yeah. does life that are questionable to say the least. But he's been dead for over seventy five years, and I think Crowley, you know, you, Crowley was a lot of people, and Crowley. You know, Crowley had a lot of uh, fuckboy aspects, you know, it's like, but like the Crowley that was the master truly was a master. Yes. I mean, he truly was. I I mean, 
you know, you put, even you put them next to somebody like Austin Spare, who I love too, but it's like, we're not exactly talking about the same thing there. Why do you think it is like we were talking at lunch the other day about how the differences in magic and, and other spiritual traditions, like I thought you articulated this perfectly like you you hit it dead on the head whenever you said that magic tends to inflate the ego in a way that other spiritual traditions don't necessarily do why i think it's a it's the magic's teething teaching teething <laughs> as a freudian slip teething method teaching method um you know it's like all these spiritual paths are about submission to the church or submission to the pat you know somebody else is laying down a pattern for life that you're supposed to follow and if you follow it you're good and if you don't you're bad and magic is about personal empowerment it's about the empowerment of the individual and there's i don't think there's any way that you can do that that doesn't inflate the ego and i don't necessarily think that's bad i mean it's like when kids are growing up they become teenagers and then they become like nightmares, you know, mm -hmm. because they're learning to assert themselves. I mean, even like two year olds, when, when, when toddlers learn to assert themselves, they're like hellions from the, the depths, you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, but it's, I think it's, it's a, the, the, the issue for me is not the ego inflation. And you know what, like sometimes I don't even think like, you know, in the pagan community, we were talking about this, people love to fight each other and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of like, if it's done correctly, because usually it's just a bunch of horse shit, but, um, you know, it can be like sparring, I guess, in martial arts. And so iron I, sharpens iron. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it can be awful too, but, um, you know, and people who, uh, are, are overestimating their strength can get their asses handed to them real quick. Oh, okay. thunder happens. <laughs> so, um, but I think that, and I was talking, I was talking to a woman on, on my podcast recently, who's been like, a in, uh, in the Wiccan tradition since the eighties in New York. And she kind of, we kind of agreed on this. She said that she left it cause she couldn't handle all the ego and the fighting and all that. Um, but then she kind of came back to it and, and, um, I just think it's a stage that it's a, it's a stage. And, and if people are working in a healthy orders, which is almost impossible to find now. Mm -hmm. Why um, is that? Because I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I mean, just a, what I was going to say is there would be elders to check them. And the reason is that they're, they're the reason is because magic was broken in the, in the West is broken by the church. It was broken by industrialization. Um, now it's probably more popular than it ever has been before. So now was a really awesome chance to reformulate some of that stuff. Um, but you know, most of the quote unquote magical traditions that people talk about only go back to the neo-pagan revival in the sixties. Mm -hmm. So you got, you know, um, you there's no unbroken golden dawn lineage. There's no unbroken OTO lineage, right? The kind of is, <laughs> but, um, we have writing, we have the internet. I, I mean, I, my, my theory on the Western magical tradition is it was important. The major importance of the Western magical tradition is that it birthed science, um, which is a product of the Western magical tradition, but then it kind of was broken. It fell off. It was kept. Part of that was people, the elite only keeping it for themselves. Part of it was industrialization. Part of it was the scientific revolution and materialism. Uh, part of it was the Jesuits. You know, like you read about John D. The church is trying to uh, straight out murder him mm -hmm. in in Prague, um, and also I think that it got taken out during World War II. I think that basically the 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 the, the Western magical tradition regenerated 
in the golden bond period. And then you had like Crowley and fortune and things like that. I think they just all got nuked during world war II. They expended all the force trying to fight, fight Germany. And then there was, you know, it, there was no tradition after world war II. It was yeah. dead until basically it was resurrected by Grady. I mean, there was Parsons that was an incredible period, but it was just a few people. And then it was kind of resurrected in the sixties by the hippies. So from, I, did, I think for me, like the things I really learned in my life and put into practice in magic beyond like the basic stuff, you know, you get all that stuff, like how to do the LBRP and the hexagram rituals and all that stuff. You get that from magic. But I think the things after that, after you've like mastered those things, after you've devoted years to doing them over and over and over relentlessly, the places that I got the things that led to like the most explosive amounts of growth for me were never in the realm of magic. Mm. They're usually in places that people don't even think to look for them. Like, are you familiar with Athanasius Kircher, like his work? Yeah, I know the name. I'm, I know the name and I've passed through that. I mean, this in, this, in the literature, this is a remind guy, me. He's it's like, he's a Kabbalistic writer. He, he was a priest. He was okay. a Roman Catholic priest. He was born in Germany, ended up moving to Italy. Um, they, they called him, you know, like, like so many of these guys that get into this stuff, like Da Vinci and all those guys, he ends up being like super polymathic to the point where they, that his nickname was the man who knew everything. And he ended up creating what would arguably be the world's very first museum, you know, like in cabinets of curiosity, okay. like they used to call them. Like he created that. He created like the very first uh, moving image camera. Like it was this giant contraption that you could put your eye up to it and turn a crank and see images moving. Like he did tons of stuff. This is a priest in the 1500s. Um, no, nobody thinks when, like, when you start thinking about magic, learning magic, nobody thinks about looking at the work of a priest, you know, a German priest in Italy during the 1500s. But that's where I got the information about the Shim operation. Wow. You know, okay. the 72 angel. Like, wow. like, if you look up Athanasius Kircher diagrams, one of the diagrams that comes up, and I don't think most people will look at it and understand what it even is, but what it is, is a diagram of how to invoke the 72 angels of the Shim operation using the formula of the LBRP. But most people are never, you know, most people that come to magic have this almost like an axe to grind against Christianity or. Yeah, that, that really religion. is a that really holds people back. It I does. Think. It's it like does. you don't have to be like, you know, you don't you don't have to be your dad. You know, it's yes. like, but you can't discard a world spiritual tradition. I always think of it as eat the meat and spit out the bones. Yeah. Like there's going to be stuff about it that's not palatable, that you don't like, whatever. But if you are willing to, you know, spit that stuff out there's a real meat there to be had that is going to advance you on this path tremendously. Well, that, that's one of the things I've appreciated so much about you and your work where you're, you know, it's like you, you are, have always been sincere and you've been giving people the actual techniques and you've actually done it. And that is so rare. Like you were saying to me the other day, like, you know, you felt like you were the only one doing it. It's like, I don't necessarily disagree with you, you know, cause it's like, <laughs> there's like, you know, I think that Magic in the U.S. is a very different beast, pun intended, from magic in, in, for instance, England, where so much of the tradition is from. Like, you go over there and, like, people in the U.K. are, like, basically atheist, um, you know, not particularly spiritual. 
Um, and their magic for them is kind of this thing about like this kind of creepy English witchcraft thing mm -hmm. and Austin Spare and Crowley. And but in the US, because of the US being what it is, it's part of it's been part of the cultural war. It's it's about being not Christian. It's about being like temple of satan it's about being basically the opposite of the evangelicals and it's like okay like i get that from you know if you grow up in in texas and everyone around you are these psychos who believe in all this evangelical horseshit mm -hmm. but it, you're not doing magic that's magic is a technology it's like magic it, it is an actual practice there is a right answer there are things you do it's like it's not just a like a a badge you wear yes you know? so, yes yes it's not just something to build an identity out of it's like a martial art yeah you know? it's like yeah and you know that was that honestly that was rough for me in the beginning just like being on death row it's like i didn't want anything to do with anything that even came remotely close to Christianity. So even, you know, all of the early Golden Dawn rituals, it's all about Hebrew names of God and, you know, archangels and all of this kind of stuff. If you're going to do this system the way it's designed, you know, the way they they left the records of how to do it, you've kind of got to get past that stuff. Yeah. Or you can't, you can't do it. So I thought, okay, just eat the meat, spit out the bones, whatever. But whenever I started doing it and, and I realized, oh my God, this stuff is working. This stuff is actually doing something to me. Then you don't care about that stuff. It's no right. longer an active of well, Once you feel it, you know, yes. once you understand what like, you get a taste of Tefereth, you understand what forgiveness is at that level. It's like, yes. you know, um, I think the thing for that, for me, that was helpful to realize also, and I only realized this recently, um, is Christianity in the U.S., is not Christianity. It's a heretical cult that was kicked out of Europe. I mean, the evangelicals are were, are heretics. And and there's a, a writer named Chris Hedges is a kind of a liberal journalist and, and he's a Lutheran priest and he hates the evangelicals. He calls it Christofascism. Um, but his opinion is, this is the opinion of a Lutheran priest. It's like, it's basically he says, like, we have these heretical people who are cruel, they hate people, they have nuclear weapons, they want to, they're just torturing everyone. And it's like, this isn't Christianity. This is a, this is a heretical offshoot. It's a cult of Christianity. And in America, we don't realize that. Yeah. I think that was, that was helpful for me. Yeah. But if you go to like the, or, I don't know if you've ever gone to like Orthodox churches, Yes. like that's, there's, there's magic there. I mean, yes. you get everything there. Absolutely. That's actually like doing doing the magnum opus classes, stuff like that. Some of y'all on here already know about like Derek. Y'all saw him, stuff like that. But that's that's the church that he's actually a part of, the Orthodox Church. But one of the things like he told me one time that had like the like profoundly changed the trajectory of my life. You know, we were talking about how when I got out, I went through those nervous breakdowns and alcohol abuse just to try to survive, all that sort of stuff. Like one of the things he told me, we were talking about, like, if you want to have these beautiful, amazing, meaningful things in your life, then you have to go to where those places are because you're going to absorb the energy yeah. of those things. Yeah. Like for me, that set me off on a path for the next year, every single day, I spent at least part of the day in cathedrals all through New York City, whether they were Orthodox or Catholic. I tried to keep it to that, you know, just because like you say, with the more Protestant evangelical stuff, there's there's not a lot of magic. You don't feel that. the juice. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They don't have the, what do you call them? The, the little artifacts of things, like mm. whether it's the tooth of a saint or, you know, a piece of wood from the whatever yeah. it is i forget yeah. the word for it 
icons. Relics or yeah, whatever. Relic, yeah. Relics or icons. Yeah. yeah. They don't have stuff like that, that when you stand in the presence of them, you know, it makes you feel some kind of awe yeah. of some sort. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, I know people give Americans a lot of flack, but I feel that Americans are particularly in uh, comparison with the English. I mean, it's like Americans are have such a sweet spiritual core to them. And sometimes it can be twisted, but it's like Americans are, uh, are, are, are they have faith in, mm-hmm. in ways that other cultures don't. Not, mm-hmm. not all cultures, but some cultures don't. You know, Europe is so atheistic. It's so secular, socialist, atheistic, you know, and it's just like, there's no juice there. Yeah. But um, one of the beautiful things for me about, now I don't, but the, one of the beautiful things about living in big cities like New York and LA is you have access to all that. Like LA, like every spiritual tradition in the world came there and built some huge temple where you can go. And it's like, you go, like I used to go to Orthodox Cathedral where it's like they have a gigantic um, you know, huge, everything's gold. And they have like a gigantic picture of Sophia mm-hmm. right there. And I went to like, a, and a lot of them are hidden. Like I went to a Syrian Orthodox church and they've got these huge murals of like six wing angels with eyes in them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, but yeah, I mean, I think that, like we were talking about New Orleans. I mean, the vibe here is different certainly than, than Austin or LA. And it's just like the power of place is a real thing. Yes. And I, what was, who was I talking to? I was talking to someone else. Oh, John Michael Greer, where he's made the point in his book that one the biggest oversight that he thinks was made in Western magic is, um, and Western philosophy is they left out the power of place which for instance, the native Americans completely understood that's not, that's not a concept because we want to have this idea that everything is portable in our head. And I don't think it is. And and what you just said for me, I don't know why or what triggered it or how it started or anything else, but that has always been a huge chunk of my own practice. And, and part of it, I think started like whenever I first got out of prison, the very first place I ever went was in New York city, Manhattan. And even though it was overwhelming, you know, you go from solitary confinement to the streets of Manhattan overnight, it shatters you. It, it really fucks you up in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I knew I loved this place to the core of my soul, you know, in a way that I will never be able to articulate to anyone. You know, I did not want to ever leave that place. I interacted with the spirit of New York City, the way most people only ever will with another person. Yeah. Like to me, it was a yeah. teacher. Yeah. It was a friend. For sure. Like it was everything to me. So I, I interacted with it in ways like I used, you know, this was one of the things I was talking about in a class recently, like telling people like different things you can use for sigils other than just like trying to get money or, you know, the whatever it is people normally think of. Like one of the things I did was to like bind myself to the egregore or the spirit or the intelligence of the place of New York City was I took all of the different names of all the neighborhoods that I loved, like Chinatown, Soho, Harlem, Tribeca, and using Austin Osmond Spare's method, turned them into sigils and then had those sigils. I charged those and then had them tattooed all over my body so that wherever I went in the world, I would still have cool. that energetic connection to the intelligence behind New York City. You still feel that? That's a really good question. And... The answer is no. Hmm. And, but I think the reason it is, is because the New York City that I had that connection to, this is going to sound crazy, but it doesn't exist. Not anymore. to me. No, I, yeah. I think it died. It died during yeah. the pandemic. It's a, it's it, to me, what it felt like 
like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic is like, imagine if you're walking down the street one day and you, and you see somebody that was a really great friend of yours, but you haven't seen them in a year and you see them and you get excited and you run up to them and you're like, Hey man, what's going on? And they turn around and you look at your eyes and you know, it's not somebody that looks like them. This is their body. This is, this is absolutely yeah. 100% their physical essence, but you are not looking at the same spirit yeah. that was in that person. Yeah, that's a scary experience. That's what New York felt like to me. Yeah. So it was like the part of the, the thing that I had built that connection to died. It wasn't the physical location. It was the energy behind it. And when that changed, when the egregore of New York changed, it changed the connection. Yeah, a lot of people told me the same thing. And you know, as you know, I, I lived in New York for seven years, most of which was around Jen. And, um, and I had to, I left during the economic collapse because it was just too expensive to live there. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't think you can even live there if you're not like a rich kid yes. or like a Saudi prince or something like yes. that, you know, and it's, it's just too str Like I always used to, even back then I, I compared New York to, you know, it's like sharks always have to move, keep moving. Cause that's how they breathe. And if they stop, all the other sharks will eat them. Uh -huh. That's New York. Yes, it is. You know, it's like everyone there. It's like, I remember the whole time I was there and this was even before the economic collapse where people were still making money. It's like the whole time I was there, it's like, you know, it's like you see someone on the street in New York and it's like, hey, like, what do you have for me? Tell me like, okay, like what business do we have? The whole, the one thing that I wanted to do more than anything the whole time I was there was like this or just sit on a couch and watch TV with someone. Not once. Does it's like, no one's got the time for that. Nope. You know, and nope. I think that's great for a certain time in your life, but it, it, it does burn you out for sure. And, and people have told me that too. I mean, they said like, you know, like, um, even like the culture in New York, like everyone's just kind of like cancel kids now. And they're just like, you know, looking for each other to slip up and just, I hate that energy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about New Orleans is it's the opposite of all of that. In New York, it's almost like you said, like everybody is trying to do something. People go to New York because they want, you know, I want to be a world famous ballet dancer. I want to be, you know, a, a Wall Street guy. I want to be whatever it is. They go to yeah. New York for a reason. American psycho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Here, the reason people come to New Orleans is because they want to enjoy their lives. Yeah. Whether they want to eat and drink, get obliterated, listen to music whatever it is people come here because they want to enjoy their lives and it creates an entire like opposite end of the spectrum kind of energy as i experienced in new york and that's one of the reasons i love it, it it's like it's nothing else in the world exists outside the bubble of new orleans it's not hmm. competing with people you know new york and la that's, are that always, must be refreshing yes I mean, New York and L.A. are always competing with each other. Like all these cities are like always trying to one up each other. Nobody in New Orleans cares what any other city in the United States is doing. It is a world unto itself. That sounds great. I mean, I, like I, I can definitely like you were saying yesterday when we were talking um, that um, this is kind of one of the last bastions of freedom. And I feel that way about I really think that. Um, like, well, first of all, that's just refreshing because it's so hard to find now. Mm -hmm. Everything's watched. Everything's controlled. Everything's, you know, and not just and the scary thing, too, is everything's controlled now, not just by like the government or like the corporations, but other people. They're constantly watching everything you say online to be like, oh, well, I got you now. You know, it's just so stressful uh, and people are not allowed to be themselves. And um, but I, I think that the South is where it's at now. I, I read a 
a thing a couple days a couple days before I came here that said like something like sixty billion dollars worth of economic worth left. I think just New York and a hundred billion dollars of of wealth has gone into the South since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Everyone's moving to Austin. People are moving to Atlanta, which I haven't been to, but I love to go to. People are moving to Florida, and uh, I, you know, obviously the South has some pretty fucked up history, but you know, like I, I think it's um, it feels so much more real to me and alive. Like L.A. is not L.A. is a is a city built on illusion. Yeah. In the same way that Las Vegas is or yeah. something like that. And New York is, New York doesn't really feel like America. It feels like the capital of the world, which is why it's so exciting. But the South is kind of its own thing. And what's the illusion of LA? Like when you everything. say that, like, because I've had somebody else say that exact, they, they, the way they described it to me was they said LA is almost like a light that was created to draw people to it. You know, like people that think I'm going to go to L.A. and be discovered and I'm going to be a movie star or I'm going to be a rock star or whatever it is. They created this light that drew people to it. And all that really happens is those people that get drew in, get used up yeah. and tossed out yep. to make way for the, the, the next. Yeah. And, and that that is, 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 is pretty dark. I, I think it's actually a lie that you can go to L.A. and make it. You have to have already made it. And then go to LA. And like, I talked to so many people in LA. It's like, look, the most talented people in the world in any field go to LA and at some point. And it's like, you know, I was like talking to a guy who's like, like the biggest, or he knew somebody who was like the biggest, I'm going to get this wrong. He was like, give me an example. It's like the biggest dancer in all of Australia. And you know, it's like, you're the big deal where you came from. And then you go there and it's like, nobody cares. You know, it's like, you're nothing here. Yes. And that's very hard for people. I think it's brutal for women, particularly the, um, the appearance standards and competitiveness and things like that. But what I mean by that, it's like, it's always fascinated me magically too, because I grew up just South of it in San Diego and, um, uh, LA is only what, like, you know, 100, 150 years old. Mm-hmm. It was built in the, the desert in the middle of nowhere. Not the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere, it's on the ocean, but it was built in the desert and it has no history. And the entire the city exists purely to produce illusion. It's the dream making center of yes. the world. So it it's a, a city, everyone's identity is an illusion. Everyone is in the business of making illusion. There's no. Uh, well, there, excuse me, there is indigenous history there, obviously, and there's a history of when it was Mexico. So that is real. But the other side of it is, you know, Yogananda called it the Varanasi of America. He thought it was the spiritual capital of the US. Because, really? Yeah, surprisingly. And I think he was right because the other aspect of it is um, every spiritual tradition in the world went there. It's, you know, every ethnic group is, you know, is represented there and they all brought their own spiritual traditions. You can find temples for every religion. So I, I feel that it's like the city of demons and the city of angels. You know, the city yeah. of angels is not the entertainment industry part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it's fascinating to me because it's a city where it's full of people who are trying to be something other than human. Mm-hmm. They're trying to be an idea or a symbol or a concept. Yeah. 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 yeah but LA is very, um, LA has no emotional food for you there's nothing unlike here you know so what what would you like if somebody asked you what's the difference in the field well well, first off do you think you know this is kind of an abstract word to even use but like we were talking about how in new orleans you feel magic like you feel something here do you feel that in did did you ever feel that in la yeah you actually do and but i'll say you know you know what the vibe you feel in la and is is thalema and kenneth anger 
and, and Charles it's, Manson. It's and, got that vibe. It's got this kind of like, um, and that's not, not, that's not bad. You know, like I find that fascinating, you know, it's like, you can go to where Jack Parsons lived and he was, you find out he was born, did his OTO stuff and died all on the same street in Pasadena. So there's that, um, there's, it's not a bad vibe. And in fact, LA is one of the heartbreaking things about leaving LA is like, there's wonderful, beautiful things about LA. It was a place where you could go as a creative person and kind of coast for a long time. Mm -hmm. And everyone's smart and creative and, you know, um, in everyone there is in, in alternative spirituality. Um, but are they really doing it or is it more just like, yeah, they can be a lot of it's performative. It's like, they want to be on a reality show, but it's like, you know, I used to live on the grounds of self-realization fellowship right next to the headquarters of Scientology, you know? So it's like, I think that LA Scientology is a big part of the vibe there. Yeah. It's kind of like, I think that LA and LA is interesting to me magically also because it's where Thelema actually began, not with Crowley, but the first Thelemic Lodge in the U S was the Parsons Lodge. And you can, the, the vibe that is being in the process of being born there is the new, new Aeon vibe Yeah, that I think will move on now that it's falling apart. But um, just like everything else yeah. in, in the U.S. Right? I was out there one time with the weirdest thing. Like, you just come in contact with weird-ass things sometimes. I go out to get dinner one night. I'm walking past an elementary school, and there is a line to get in this elementary school that, that goes all the way around the block. Like, thousands of people are standing in line to get in this elementary school. And I asked somebody, like, what's what's going on? What's everybody waiting to get in for? They said, James Franco is doing a ritual inside like what what kind of ritual yeah. and nobody really knew they're like he's yeah, invoking that. something or doing something or something i was like that's kind of crazy oh yeah everyone's into magic there it is the magic city in a way um it, it for everyone's into the everyone 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 this is what it is everyone in la has something on the back burner magically because everyone there believes in like manifestation or new age stuff because they're all trying to make it an entertainment so they yeah. want anything that will help Give them my get heads there up. Yeah. yeah and and you know as you know like artists and musicians and actors and creative people are inclined to magical thinking anyways because mm -hmm. what they do for a living they right. pretend to be other people or they create right. vibes as musicians yeah. but i think that um see now i'm getting nostalgic for it it's like i i think that la is is the lemma in, in action. You know, it's every man and woman is a star. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and, uh, it is, it is kind of a, a new aeon thing in the process of being, maybe it's, it was kind of born out of there rather than London. What you said though, even about getting nostalgic for it, like when you think about it, that's kind of the same thing I feel about New York a lot still. Like I went to see a movie recently i can't remember the name of it it's a korean movie it's like a love story where the the woman ends up moving over here to the u.s she immigrates to the u.s ends up going to new york but you're seeing like all these you know the the new york city skyline in the background in some of the scenes and to me that was always one of the most beautiful things i'd ever seen oh in my yeah life. you know there were oh, times yeah. like i would be on the train headed into new york and i would see that skyline and it was like i can't breathe you know like it feels like my heart's gonna explode. it's gorgeous but, and I feel nostalgic when I see that, but what happens now is I remind myself that's not the place you loved anymore. Hmm. Like it's, it's dead. It's gone. That's how I feel about LA. Too. I have to remind yeah. myself of that a lot still. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, at New York, I I remember being like, I remember one time I was on the roof of my apartment in Queens, just seeing that skyline, you know, or 
you know, one time I was just standing on the roof of the ad agency I was working on, working at, uh, and it was raining and there was lightning. They're seeing lightning coming down over the city. It's like, man, it doesn't get better than that, you yeah. know? And the thing that I love about New York is, and always love so much, is it forces you to be in contact with other people. Yes. Like it's a very um, physical and embodied city and an and erotic city where you're constantly on the train. You're like meeting people. And when you meet people, you know, you're probably never going to see them again. So you have to establish like an intense emotional connection with them right away. Like that, I feel is so healthy. Mm-hmm. And you, you feel part of humanity there. And not just America, but the whole world. You feel like you're in the center of the world because you yes. are. Yes. LA in LA is is um very emotionally hard because it's the opposite. It is um you're always in a car on the freeway and or in your at home or at work. And you're LA is a city where you don't have to be in physical contact with anybody ever. Yeah. And that's really bad for people, I think. Yeah. And um like I always feel like like the actual lived experience of LA is like you know, it's like you're on the road, you're in traffic, and in the distance you see something, but then you realize it's a mirage, and the closer you get to it, the further away it gets, and yeah. that's maybe like being successful or making yeah. it in the showbiz or whatever. But, um, you know, LA is a city that, contrary to what you would think, because it's like the capital of the entertainment industry, is like completely devoid of human contact and eroticism. Yeah. It's just people are people are like mannequins there. I always think New York is either going to make you strong or it's going to break you. One of the two, because it's like, I always, it feels like a living entity. And I used to think all the time, like when I was riding the train, you're on the subway, I would think this is the veins and arteries of this entity we're in. And we are the blood. Like we are, you look at everybody around you and there's this shared sense of we're all in this together because we're all part of the fabric. We're like individual blood cells in this beast. And that was kind of part of what disappeared after the pandemic too, that that sense of we're all in this together and, you know, we're all part of one thing. Hmm. And I had a point to that. I was getting to something, but I lost what it was. I was something I was going to ask you about LA. Oh, Oh, the thing about New York making you either strong or breaking you. Another thing about it is one of the reasons, like we were talking about, about how everybody is working towards something. Nobody stops moving like the sharks. You have to keep moving at all times. One of the things, and that shark analogy is dead on because one of the things that makes you move at all times in New York is, you know, If I get caught slipping for even a second, there are a million people younger than me, smarter than me, prettier than me, hungrier than me that are waiting to step in and take my place at the slightest chance of. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, and also you got to keep moving just to pay, just paying rent, you know, is like stressful enough. (laughs) You, you, you live to pay rent. Yeah, you do. And the, the, you're paying rent for like, you're paying a fuck ton of money for like a, cl- a closet that in someone's. You will never yeah. own. Yep. No, not in LA now either. That's another reason I left. Let me ask you this though. I mean, it's like, you know, I, the question, at least on my mind, has been like, what is going to emerge out of this period? Because, you know, like during the pandemic, I feel like it's almost like the stand, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like everyone was getting pushed around and like almost forced directed to different parts of the country. It felt like that for me, at least, you know, you left New York, I left LA, lots of people we know left lots of places. A lot of people came to the South. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And now it's like people have also figured out to varying degrees that they might not need to all work in an office together. They can mm-hmm. kind of live different places, but also like all the real estates being bought up by corporations or by foreign investors. 
what do you think uh, is going to emerge out of this in terms of like whether it's cities that become um nexi of of activity or you know whatever it is you know that I, might emerge from this i honestly have no fucking clue like i i can't see it at all i can't i can't find a handhold in the world now to see like what the next move is going to be, where it's going to go. You know, I think you've got so many people with so many different agendas who are all kind of tussling to, I, I think what is happening right now, the world is in labor and a new world is about to be born. I think that's what all of the strife and, and all, every, all the anguish and everything else that everybody's feeling right now. It, it's almost like, you know, labor is not a pleasant sensation. In order for something yeah. new to be born, there has to be this period of like pain and turmoil and all that sort of stuff. I think that's what we're in. So it's almost like for me, like trying to guess what the child is going to look like right before it's born. Hmm. And this is one of those things, you know, to like, I've always said, I'm not a particularly introspective person or, you know, I don't have a philosophical bent or any, like when people ask me, what are you thinking about? And I say nothing. I mean, literally nothing. Most of the time, I'm not thinking about anything, but you know, like the stuff we were talking about before we came on before we got started, you know, just the things like when I was doing magic for hours and hours a day, when I was in Harlem and you're seeing things and you're going through all these experiences and all this kind of stuff, you know, one of the, the, it's, it's so bizarre looking back in hindsight and talking about the stuff now, like at one time I thought it was the only thing in the world that mattered. I thought magic was the only thing that meant anything. And the experiences that I was having while I was doing it to me dwarfed at the time, anything that could ever happen out here, you could experience out here, you know, this, this will sound absolutely stark raving insane, but it was like, God came to me and talked to me in this little apartment in Harlem. Doesn't sound crazy. Three o'clock in the morning, yeah. every morning I'm up doing these rituals and I'm, you know, I always call them downloads, mm -hmm. you know, like you're mm -hmm. getting all the stuff and you're seeing all these things. And it's like suddenly the world's making sense to you and you're seeing how it all fits together and clicks together. At that time, if you would have asked me, like, what do you see the world coming to? What's it going to transform into? What's it going to look like? I may have had a better answer, but it was like passing through that as crazy as it, it was like one day. You know, it's like what they call the marriage of the HGA, where once you combine with it, you're not a separate thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Like you, you've kind of integrated in, into you. That was what happened to me during that time period. It was like I integrated God into myself and it was no longer like this external thing that was showing me things and giving me messages and all this. And all of a sudden from that point on, it was like I never heard from God again. Yeah. So now it's like I have no clue what's coming in the world or what it's going to look like or anything else yeah i couldn't have told i, I mean i never would have predicted that i ever would have lived in in the south i mean austin's not exactly the south but it's the gateway you know yeah no. i mean uh and um or any you know i i couldn't foresee any of this happening i think may, maybe a lot of people have this experience where it's like i felt like prior to the pandemic i had a script for how my life was going to go and everything was in place and you know it seemed like everything was like you know pretty linear and straightforward and then it just all got smashed mm -hmm. and now it's like oh uh, okay well now i'm on a completely different timeline 
Yeah, exactly. If you would have asked me three years ago, like, I would have sworn that I was going to live and die in New York. Like I had already said, like, you know, I had told Lori probably within three days of being out of prison. I remember we're on the train one day going somewhere and I told her, if anything ever happens to me, you have to make sure they either bury me here or if I'm cremated, pour my ashes on the streets. You know, just like just on the sidewalk, in the street, corner of Broadway and Canal, dump me out so that I'm part of the city forever. I would have never in a million years have foreseen a time when I would leave that place behind. Yeah. But it changed. It cha- I mean, it, it in some ways it was sad. You know, it's like when a, a parent or something dies or a relationship ends or whatever it is, there is that element of, of sadness to it that you have to go through a period of grief. But I also feel like it really did catapult me into a, a completely new stage of growth that I never would have started on if not for it. Like, like I never had a driver's license in my life, never owned a car in my life. If I lived in New York, there was no reason to drive. I would have, I would have never done that, never learned how to drive. Or even things like taking up martial arts or boxing or, you know, whatever it is. I never would have started these things if I would not have been pushed out. Yeah. I know it always sucks at the time, but then you look back and you're like, wow, like, you know. That's why it happened. It it is like a birthing process from the universe. Um, I I mean, like for me, and that's how my life has gone for sure. And and it's always disorienting. Uh, And, but it's like. You know, I, and I think that, that there might be a kind of something between that and like taking grades. Mm-hmm. You, know, you end up in a totally different life. That's, I think it's an initiation. Yeah. That's exactly what most people, when they hear the word initiation, they think it means like you're inducted into a club or a group <laughs> and you're a member. That's just a like to play act yes. to hope it happens. I always think like what initiation truly is, it's a death and a rebirth. You know, even with baptism, like baptism in Christianity, it's, it's you know, you're initiated into this Christian tradition. Like when you go under the water, it represents you dying and being mm-hmm. buried. And when you ra- well, they raise you up, you're raised up into this new life. So it, initiation, ultimately, when you get down to the core of what it means, it's your the old you is dying. Your old way of living, your old way of thinking, your old way of interacting with the world is dying and you are being reborn as a new person Mm -hmm. who's going to interact with reality in a completely different way. Yeah. And that's like the classic formula of all initiation rituals. And one of the other things that I really took from Crowley and I think was so important that is another one of the things that's buried in his writing is he talks about the the formula of Vyav. What is that? So he basically talks about like in the old in the old, the quote unquote, the old aeon, the formula of initiation is IAO. You know, it's like the dying and reborn God. You're, you're, you know, that's, that's the plot of every religion. It's the plot of every movie. You got the hero, then they die, then they're reborn better. And they're, they're the king now. Right. But he said in the aeon of Horus, it's Vyav, where you have a put a vow at the beginning and the end. And what that is, is, you know, as we know from Eastern traditions, you already are the core of what you are is this unbreakable divine essence that everyone has. Mm-hmm. But he says in the Anaphoris, it's like, no, you're di- you die and you're reborn. You die and you're reborn. You die and you're reborn. You just keep doing it over and over and over again because it's fun. And you're the same, you, the, your core essence, your core enlightened essence is the same through all of those incarnations. But you learn something new about yourself every time. Yeah. And, and the, so he said, like, so the, the formula of the Anaphoris is not to do the whole suffering and being reborn thing. And he actually completely rejects suffering as like, um, 
at least necessary for spirit is necessary for spiritual growth. It's a thing that we can do to learn from. But he says that, you know, the Aeon of Horus is the child at play with the universe. And it's this cycle of like living all these lives. Like I've lived so many, I can't even keep track of the number of people I've been now. Yes. Like I, I, I can forget whole lives I've lived. Like I was like, a, I was a, I was a cynical ad man. I was a world traveler. I was a, a writer it was a that was like all these things you know and it's like it, all of these were different periods of my life and and i think that is kind of like the whole thing about you know like there's like the magic you do in um the magic that you do in the temple and the magic you do in your life and you kind of need both mm -hmm. but for me it's like you know it's like when you look at you're talking about the grades it's like you look at grades and things like that it's like well it's like you know they look at the grade of netzok right and it's like okay well that would be you're supposed to do all these things and some of these things and do devotional practices. It's like, well, you know, maybe in your life, it's like, you know, the beauty of falling in love and having this building a relationship with somebody and learning about love at, at this deepest possible level and, um, uniting with that person and living with them. And then, and then, and then it falling apart and the pain of losing love. And then you just, you, you have, you, you go through the initiation of that human experience at the deepest level. Like that, that's, that's what that great, that's what, for me, the tree of life really is the tree of life. It's the tree of life experiences. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're in the, you're, it's not like you're in a temple doing Venus talismans, although right. you might be doing that too, you know? Right. It's like, there's kind of macro and micro levels to these things. And, think, and we don't get to pick the macro level, right, I don't think. Right. I think the suffering thing, I agree. I don't think it's necessary, like for growth and development and all that. I think they're. You know, this is just my own personal opinion, but I think what where it usually comes in is most people, for whatever reason, don't want to change. Yeah. They don't want to grow. You know, they want to get to a point where it's like, okay, this is it. You know, I'm not going to struggle anymore. Uh, and and what happens when you reach that? No matter what that place is, eventually you're going to start stagnating. Yeah, the suffering comes because life. God, the universe, however you call it, whatever you want, the way you want to look at it, it doesn't want us to stay. It doesn't want us to stagnate. It want, I think if you take your growth and development into your own hands mm -hmm. and constantly like, like put yourself into new situations where you're coming in contact with new people and new ideas and new practices or whatever it is, it's like the growth is going to continue. Yeah. So you don't necessarily have to suffer. But it's like when well, you, you're going to suffer no matter what, you know, that's it's, like, true. it's just part just of life, but, old age and everything else. But I, I think you don't have to like pursue it. Yes. Or cling to it. Yeah. Build an identity out of it. Sure. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's why it's like, and I agree with you. And it's so beautifully put. It's like, and, and you're talking about change. It's like, yeah, I mean, we were talking about Hokma, Dao, chaos, the Lama, all this stuff, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like, th this is why I love magic too. It's like, it's, you're throwing yourself, you're living life. You're choosing to live life. You're throwing yourself into it. And, 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 you know, as Jen used to say, you know, confront every situation, meet every situation head on mm -hmm. mesh or uh, see, you know, the topi phrase was see a cliff, throw yourself off it. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And that's why it's like, you, you kind of meet people who we were talking about kind of the magic eye metaphor of magic where it's, you get it or you don't. And you kind of meet people who like are literally like, well, I'm such and such great of such and such order. And my, you know, like I'm going to curse you with all my powerful demons. And it's like, okay, you, you, it's kind of like, I meet people like that and I'm like, okay, they're there. 
you are kind of like developmentally challenged in a way. You know, it's like <laughs> it's kind of like you meet a, a retarded cat or something like that, reminds- and you feel bad for them. And it's like, okay, well, I hope you kind of move through this. Yeah. But yeah, it reminds me of that. I always think of it as this Zen story I heard about this guy who goes to see this Zen master one time, and he says, "I want you to be my teacher. I want to learn from you." And I've read these books, and I've been to this temple, and I've studied under this teacher, and all this. And while he's talking, the Zen master's pouring tea, and it just he keeps pouring and letting the cup start to overflow. And the guy says, what do you do? And it's full. And the Zen master says, exactly. It's like, you've got to empty out all this crap. Mm. You think, you know, because if all that stuff were doing you any good, you wouldn't have come here searching for me. I'll get people like that. It's like, they'll, they, they want to tell you like, you know, everything they know and, you know, all the teachers they've studied with and the orders they've been part of and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, okay, that's great. But, what do you want from me then? Yeah. Well, I used to be like that too. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, like when I met Jen, I was just like, blah, 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 blah running my mouth with all this Kabbalah shit. I think Jen, we all do that at some point. It's a, yeah. it's a stage you got to go through because yeah. you got to learn that stuff too. I don't think you can get around it, but, but that's, that's why it's important to have. I think that's another reason why this time period is so, um, inc- I think this is the golden age of magic. I don't think there's ever been this much access to this stuff no. and not just the writings and the teachings, but you can watch live streams or like listen to podcasts with people talking about it, sharing their lived experience. I remember even in the nineties, you know, it's like, as you know, it's like you read this stuff and you get this build up this mental picture of like, oh, these people must be living in castles mm-hmm. and like, you know, mm-hmm. like throwing lightning bolts and like all these, they must be the Illuminati. And it's now you like go to their Facebook page and it's like, they're just like posting like, uh, <laughs> you know, like Infowars memes and stuff like, that. you know, it's like, it's just like, so now it's like we can, the, the hum- humanity has been drawn together. I mean, what we all in the 90s used to say, well, 2012 is going to come. Well, what's 2012? 2012 was when everyone's going to become one group consciousness, you know, and it's, well, here you go for better yeah. or worse, yeah. you know, it happened. Now we can see each other now we can participate in, we can participate in contact millions of people, you know, it's like that. It's, it's, and that's the thing. People, it drives me crazy. People are like, what magic? There's no magic. I'm like, bro, like you can pick up your phone and summon a magic carpet to take you somewhere. You can have things delivered from across the world the same day. You can like, you know, merge minds with millions of people in an instant. And like, we take it for granted. Yes. It's like, you can fly in the air yeah. to another part of yes. the world. And it's like, what else do you want? I always say, it's like, if you look at any of these old books on magic and all the powers they, they offer, you can have all those with a cell phone now, yes. you know, like the magic mirror, like remember you like, talk about like sorcerers who would have crystal balls where they could talk to the sorcerers. Well, you could have FaceTime, you know? Yeah. And so then what's what, so then the question is like, well, what's the point of magic? It's just old superstition. It's like, no, no, no. The point of magic magic is how do you deal with all that power what is the moral and ethical framework for living in a world of gods and monsters because we live in a world of magic of gods and, and this idea that there's like you know everyone believes in scientific rationalism no they don't i think more people believe in magic now if you really go out and live in the world than they do in some richard dawkins thing yeah um people are we do live in a magical culture we are in the aeon of horus so now the question is the question is not how do you get power because if you have a cell phone you have more power than any king in the middle ages could yes. possibly have dreamed of yes. the question is now how do you deal with it how do you you know, and then, then you get into questions of spirituality or you get into questions of like the true will. This is like the Zen cone of Crowley, I think, where he gives you all this stuff, uh, magical techniques and stuff like that. And he just throws you into it. And I think you have to figure out at a certain point, 
okay, well, now this works. Well, now what do I do? And you go right back to where you were before, which is like, well, what do I want to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And now you have to meditate. Now you're thinking, well, what, you know, who am I? What's my true will? And, you know, that's a much harder problem to solve. Yes. I think one of the things that really kind of struck me, made an impact on me one time, somebody was talking about how during his, like, like if you believe that Jesus was a real person who was on the earth at one point and was traveling around the Middle East talking, like, like, Take all that as a given. If if you took into consideration like the area that he lived in, like where all he went while he was teaching, maximum in his life, he would have come in contact with something like 35,000 people in his life. Now, if you have a decent sized Facebook audience, you can reach that many people in a split second. Yeah, and only 12 people listened to him and one of them betrayed him. So, you know. <laughs> it's it's crazy right and it's like i i'm of the opinion that god grows just like people and Mm -hmm. the god of you know it's like and you can even see god growing in the bible it's like god in the beginning of the bible is a fucking prick Mm -hmm. is like this jealous possessive like cruel being and then by the end it's like you know god's like chill god you know like smoke some weed or something because he's like yeah you should all love each other you know it's like so god is demonstrating that people if even god can grow you know that's that's a lesson to us and um you know god is the same god you know god whatever god is you know infinite intelligence the the grand, uh, the great angel of the universe is the the golden whatever whatever word you know the words are meaningless but whatever that higher power is which i do believe in i have faith i'm not i'm not saying that in like a super christian way i just saying that in going through life i don't think you can really go through life and not believe that there's something higher intelligence that is 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 benevolent yeah i mean there's malevolent intelligences too for sure but the great angel of the universe is that a golden dawn yeah i've never heard that before hua they invoke it in during before terror readings. It's in I, some I of the knew, I didn't know what it meant. I knew the the HUA, but yeah. I didn't know. I never heard. I forget the what it stands before. for exactly. That's exactly. a really great phrase. Yeah, I might be mangling it. So the great look angel it up, of the universe. I, I might. It, it's something like that. That makes so much sense. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, and and I think that you know, obviously, God, God, I believe whatever God is, obviously, it manifests itself to different people in different different cultures in different ways. Mm-hmm. So you get that when you do Enochian. One of the really interesting things about Enochian is you can get 12 people and I'll have them do Enochian and they'll all have comparable experiences, but they'll express it in different ways. I mean, you get people, they do Enochian and they don't see angels. They see like Star Trek aliens. Yeah. You know, but that's what was in their mind. That's yeah. what that whatever that is used to talk to them. Yeah. Whether you want to believe it's their own unconscious or their soul, if you just want to be psychological about it, fine. You know, it's you're going to get the same result. You know, it, what you just said, like what we were talking about before we started recording, like just the thing about how, you know, I was talking about that experience where like you see God, but the the more you try to look at it and get any defining characteristics, you it turns into the devil. And the more you see the devil and you're trying to look and like get any defining characteristics it turns back into god 
a friend of mine who went through the same process that I was talking about, like he didn't see that. He didn't experience that. He said what he experienced, he said he went through like this period where he saw and felt himself like in a life or death battle with himself. And it wasn't like, you yeah. know, his perspective went back and forth. <laughs> like he was both <laughs> the worst enemy. Simultaneous. He said, he said when, at one point when he got himself down and was about to run himself through with a sword, he said, said at the exact same time, he felt like this horror and terror and sorrow that his life was about to end while he felt like this surge of victory and power, like I've overcome this bastard, like both at the same time. Yeah. So it's like we're both doing the same thing, but we're interpreting it or it's going through different filters yeah. in our it's head. Just, it's just what you were saying that the something to the effect of um, you get your best information from not obvious magical sources right. and I, I definitely believe that's like you know it's like a cult means hidden and hidden means hidden it doesn't mean go to this that section of the bookstore and you're going to get all the secrets right. right and it's like one thing i tell uh i tell my students sometimes is or just people who want to know about magic like my number one advice to them is don't read fucking occult books you have to also but for me you know the core axioms of hermeticism is the core axiom of hermeticism is that everything is one thing mm -hmm. and it's talking to you. Mm -hmm. And obviously that can go too far into a schizophrenic direction. But, you know, it's like when I was researching for the, for uh, my John D book, it's like you really get into the belief systems of the Renaissance and the enlightenment that produced Hermet of the produced the Western esoteric tradition. And it's completely coherent it's like they talk about they have all that order of the stars and planets and that's a huge part of it but they also say you know their conception of it in, in elizabethan england the hermeticist was there's three books there's the book of god which is the bible mm -hmm. there's the book of um yeah the book of scripture the book of i think just learning in the i forget what it's called you have the book of the bible the book of learning in the world or excuse me the book of scripture the bible the book of the soul, which is your own being that you learn from yourself mm -hmm. and the book of nature. And that's all of this. And this is God talking to you. The whole point of the doctrine of correspondences and signatures, like you read these books where it's like, well, you know, vervain means this and right, like right. hensbane means this. It's like, well, what they're saying is that in the words of the great magician Morrissey, uh, nature is a language. Can't you read? It's like, these are all symbols that are telling us different things. And you get that with like the oath of the abyss where you take everything as a direct message to you. And it's just like, and the way that I would put it is pay attention. It's like this that you're in is teaching you all the time. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn magic, ask the universe to teach you magic and this will teach it to you. Mm -hmm. You don't need a book. You don't need a teacher. Although that is very helpful to get started and to structure it. So you know what to look for. Mm -hmm. That's, but initiation also means to start. It doesn't mean to finish. Yes. It means to hit the pilot light. And sometimes you need someone to come along. Sometimes you need someone to come along and like get your gas burner going, like to be able to light your, your stove. But sometimes you just light it yourself and you need someone to, just to validate like yeah you did it mm -hmm. like that's important too mm -hmm. but um do you think you've had a lot of people like that throughout your life i was fortunate to yeah, yeah. I, w I had i had a ton i mean i sought out teachers i was in 
I was in, um, you know, IOT for a long time Then I found, you know, I met Jen. Um, I had tons of Eastern gurus. I had gurus in, in India, in Nepal. I mean, but I spent a, like 10 years actively seeking it out right. and doing the whole like Batman begins thing where it's like, right. you go seek the, the teachers. But, um, cause I also put myself in the position early on of writing about it. So I was like, well, I better fucking get it right then. And that means like, I better put a lot of information and like i gotta read everything i gotta know everything i have to experience all everything so but um you know it's like for for me it's kind of like what i was saying about grades where it's like you go through a grade and it's a life experience the universe is teaching you something mm -hmm. um, and i structure all of that through the western esoteric tradition and the kabbalah and that brings a lot of having structure for your experience brings a lot of um peace and understanding and calmness i mm -hmm. think because you know one of the things that makes people more anxious than anything else is thinking that there's no order to their life or the universe yes. like that's horrible like you can go through the you can go through terrible things but it's like if it's for meaning if there's meaning to it yes you know yeah i think somebody victor frankl or somebody like that correct mm -hmm. me if i'm wrong i'm sure you read this he was saying something like uh you know mankind can bear almost any uh any any what if if he has a, a why yeah i'm probably mangling yeah. that quote but you know what i'm talking yes, about yes exactly yeah anyways i'm kind of rambling but it's like for me you know I, you you start off with magic with reading these books and trying to master these systems and that stuff is is amazing but then for me at a certain point i got to a point where i see everything as a magical system i see you know i see the world as complex systems waiting to be mastered yes. you know and it's like if you want to like you can if you want to learn how to if you want to be president, the world is presenting you with systems that you can go learn, master the political system and become Joe Biden. I don't want to, but somebody does. That's yeah. their true will, right? It's like there's these systems that you can study obsessively and, and um, master. It's like if you want to be good at any career. It's like, well, go get the books that tell you how to do it. If you want to be a great cook. Like I had this conversation with Duncan once where like I can't, he came over to my house and I cooked for him and he was like, you're a really good cook. And I was like, well, I just followed the instructions in the book. And for some reason he was like, that's mind blowing. I'm like, well, <laughs> it's like, you know, somebody, no matter what you want to, no matter what you want to do in life, somebody else has already done it and left instructions. Yes. And so all you have to do is follow the instructions and you'll get the same result, just the same as magic. Yes. You, know? you know, people Anyways. complain sometimes like about like say the cost of books or whatever. They'll talk about, you know, I don't want to pay $25 for a book. And I always say, you're not paying $25 for a book. You're paying $25 for all of this person's life experiences in this genre of whatever it is they're talking about so that you don't have to make the same mistakes they did. They're giving you like tremendous shortcuts for $25. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say that to I mean, obviously like I, I, as, as you do, I do this for a living. So, but I tell people like, you know, people get, you know, I, I have classes you can pay for and people are say, well, you know, magic should be free. And, I'm, and I say, well, it is, you can mm -hmm. go, go learn it. I'm not going to stop you. No one needs to take my courses. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, if you want to skip 20 years of painful mistakes that I made, you know, maybe it's worth, yes. you know, a few bucks that you're going to yes. spend on like, you know, PlayStation games anyways. Yes, so, like, you know. yes. that's that's the, even when I came to magic, like when I did start writing about it, the thing that I always thought is I'm not like some great super genius that's going to show anybody anything that hasn't already been said before, hasn't already been done before, hasn't 
probably been articulated a hundred times better than I can do it. All I was trying to do was take all of these things that in the beginning confused the fuck out of me and strip all of like the archaic language out of it and just simplify it. Make it so simple that anyone can do it. It's not anything new. Like you can learn, you don't have to buy my books or listen to anything that I say or anything else. You can find it all out there in the world for free. Mm -hmm. All I'm trying to do is make it easier to take in and assimilate and integrate and stuff. Yeah. I think that the beauty of our age is that we have access to all this information, but also the downside is that we have all this access to this information. We don't know what's important and what's not. And it's meaningless because it's all easy to get. I mean, like when I was starting, it was fucking hard to find this stuff. Mm -hmm. You really had to look, you know, I'm sure you remember. It's like, and I remember talking to some of my teachers, like one of my teachers said, like in the 60s, she had to go all over the US to find one book by Gurdjieff. And it was like in a university library and they had to, they like watched her while she read it with like gloves on. It's like, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't even get access to Crowley's books until recently. You yeah. get maybe one or two. Yes. The Book of Thoth and Magic Without Tears, but like you couldn't get read the whole thing. But what changed with that also, though, is like when it was that way, like when we were growing up. It and, meant something. Yes. <laughs> like it, when you got one of those books, it was like a valued possession. Like you cherished that thing. You probably For read sure. it over and over and over. Now it's like people go out and buy all of Crowley stuff in one trip to the store, put it on a shelf and never crack the covers yeah. up. I remember I got, um, you know, I found a copy of Liber Nolan Psychonaut. Uh, and I was like, this is the secrets of the universe. And I spent the next seven years just with that book, you know, and, and like, there's nothing, there's not even really a whole lot of content in that book, you know, but at the time it was so mind blowing. And so like, for me, that was a big part of it, just finding the information. And then, so that's why I became passionate about putting the information out so that, cause I wanted more people to have the experiences come to the party, you know? Yeah. And, um, the other thing is like, I think sometimes it's like, we can't take for granted. It's going to be like this forever. They could right. shut down the internet so fast, you know, and it could go back to, yes. and then I tell people hoard books too, because now like they're editing all the books to make them like more compliant with how people want politics to be now. Like they're editing all of the James Bond books. They're editing the Roald Dahl books to change the text because they don't think it's politically correct. And there's a lot of books that you can't find anymore. It's hard to find David Icke's books you know, the old ones, you know, there's a lot of stuff, the, the ability that they've been able to have to just edit people, edit people out of the, yeah. the conversation is actually pretty scary yeah. despite having all this information. So I tell people hoard information digitally and hoard books too, because let's say the internet goes down. People always say like, well, there could be an EMP pulse, but like, whatever, let's say that just like the government, like decides like, you know, let's say the government just tolls the internet where you got to pay 400 bucks if you want the full a month, if you want the full internet. Well, not everyone's going to be able to afford that. Right. You know, what if, and how do you know the stuff on the internet hasn't been altered? Right. It's, it's, the internet is like simultaneously the greatest liberatory, well, it was the greatest liberatory tool. Now it's the greatest tool for control the world has ever known. See, I started to think and feel that same way, not just about books and information, but about music too. You know, at first I'm thinking all of these you know, platforms that come out, like whether it's Apple Music or Spotify or whatever it is that people are listening to music on, like, that's great. You can have the whole, you know, library of the world's music in your hand at all times. But then you get somewhere where you don't have internet or if something happens to the internet. And I started thinking, I better get a record player. 
Now yeah. I understand why people are still collecting vinyl. It's like, even without the internet, you're still going to be able to use those records. It's got a different feel to it also. It's yeah, it like, does. It feels more alive in some way. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, I still have my dad's old records and stuff like that. And I'm, I'll am i play them and I'm like, I'm listening to the same sound wave that my dad was listening to in 1973. You know? Yes. That's, that's. I mean, if you think about that That's kind of magic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're, I mean, you know, I, I can't remember who it was that described this to me, but it was like so dead on for some of the experiences that I had went through. They were talking about whenever you like say, however you want to phrase it, like approach the throne of God, whatever it is, when like you're, you're seeing a place, experiencing a place, going to a place, however you want to say it, that is beyond the boundaries of time and space. It is outside of those boundaries. So at the moment, you are experiencing that it's like you are standing shoulder to shoulder with the prophets like ezekiel and daniel and you know john the revelator like you're standing because you're outside of time there is no past anymore so you are with them experiencing what they're experiencing mm -hmm. while they're experiencing it same way with listening to those records listen to that same sound wave it's almost like you are standing outside of space and time at least on certain levels of reality you know maybe not the physical world you're still you know interesting definitely aging but same principle that's crazy you know like I, one thing that always blows my mind is sound waves never go away like we're talking right now and everyone is listening to this like those sound waves are going out into the air and they will never go away they just get smaller over time wow like that's nuts to me yeah i never somewhere all those like you know somewhere jesus's sermons are still echoing in the way somewhere hitler's speeches are still echoing in the air somewhere wow. it's, it's pretty nutty yeah that's crazy maybe i'm angling that too i'm not a <laughs> i'm not a scientist yeah but um yeah that's interesting what you're saying i mean like one uh, let me ask you this do you ever get the sense that like we read about these great magicians or spiritual teachers in the past or spiritual figures do you ever get the sense that like they're not dead yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. I think whenever you, you know, especially when you start to get into the areas of magic where you have those, you know, this stuff sounds so crazy. And it's it's part of why I don't even like talking about it anymore, because it just makes you sound like a fruit loop. You know, like you're one of those people that get lost in cosmic woo woo. And, you know, it's just just some of it just sounds so ridiculous. But yeah. Absolutely. Unless you're talking to someone who, who's had the same experience. I mean, that, I think that's part of it too. It's like, like you're talking about in Hokma and all that. You, it's like the curse of the magus is you have to talk. People are going to think it's total gibberish. And since it comes down from the abyss, people will interpret it opposite to what you meant, which is then, which is what happened to Jesus, obviously, you know, so. And I think also it sounds kind of like egoics in, in, in certain ways, like with Crowley, when Crowley came out and he said, okay, I'm a secret chief. Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, same way if you came out today and like, I'm a secret chief, you post that on your Twitter account or whatever. Yeah. It's like, I should like, do that actually. Just, like, <laughs> the, <laughs> I should the, just lean into it. <laughs> I think the, the thing is like what, what I have come to understand and experience through my own practice is that we literally are the secret chiefs. Like, like what the way that I, my brain interpreted it whenever I was seeing these things and understanding these things. Did you ever see that movie with Matthew McConaughey where he's like going to space or something? Contact or interstellar. Is that what it was? Where yeah. he thinks his house is haunted because he's hearing a knocking. Yeah. But then it yeah. turns out yeah. that it's actually him knocking. 
Yeah. Like what I saw is that's what the secret chiefs are. Like I asked somebody one time, it didn't occur to me for years to ask this, because I thought like when you're talking about the golden dawn system of magic or, you know, like even some of the stuff from, from what's, what's the guy's name, the philosopher, the, the Neoplatonist and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. When you're talking about these things and you really start to understand them, you're like, Jesus Christ, this isn't something that people and whether this is true or not, I don't know. This is just what I started to feel. Like, this isn't something that's, that developed over time, that evolved. Like, this is something that we were given. You mm-hmm. know, like, e- even the, the Golden Dawn, they said, this isn't something we created. This was given to us from some outside source, from the right. secret chiefs. And it's not that we're evolving it and, and discovering more of it. If anything, it's that we're losing some of it as yeah. we go through time. That's what John D believed. And I think it's, that's I think the it's same correct. Thing, yeah. That's the exact same thing that I came to believe just from the things I saw and that I experienced is that we are the secret chiefs. We gave ourselves this information. It's almost like being called. Did you ever see that movie Lucy? Where no. Scarlett Johansson, like she she takes this drug that like like opens up her consciousness or whatever, and she becomes almost like omnipotent and all powerful. And she's trying to figure out, okay, that's great, but what do I do with this? And she meets Morgan Freeman, who's a scientist, and he says, the only thing that any of us ever do with this, pass it on. Yeah. So she goes back in time to yeah. like the very first human coming up out of the primordial whatever that's still like three quarters ape. And she passes the information like in the form of energy onto this thing. I think that's the exact same thing that we have and are still going through with, with the secret chiefs or whatever, whatever name you want to call them. You know, they have different names for them in other cultures. I think it's us. I think we gave ourselves this information and we're kind of in this repeating loop where we're having to learn what we already know because we took it back and gave it to ourselves. That makes I know a lot that of sounds sense. crazy. Not to me, not at all. I, I think, yeah, when I really think about this stuff, I was talking about to Greer about John Michael Greer about this, and we were talking about, um, you know, the, the, the broadly political factions of magic, the left wants to progress into the future. The right wants to see it as de- degenerating from the past, but I don't think either one is actually fully true. I think everything is happening now. Mm-hmm. It's like, for instance, like I've had experiences where I'm reading just the new Testament and I'm reading or the confessions of St. Augustine, you know, and like, like, um, you know, I, I just had this, experience. I was reading the confessions of St. Augustine who was a pagan, um, academic or something like that. And then he converted to Christianity. And there's this part where he's just talking about being out basically on a Saturday night and seeing people drunk and passing out and just the, like how the horrible things people do to themselves. And I was like, he's talking about now or as reading the new Testament and Christ is, t- is telling his parables and just like, you have this shift where he's like, he's not talking about he's everything he's talking about is happening now. Mm-hmm. This is all, it's all happening all the time. Or even to be like more literal, it's like, with the secret chiefs thing, it's like, you know, like Buddha. Okay. Well, let's say this is a non-controversial statement. Let's say Buddha is a secret chief. You, I think anyone in the world would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, or he's an enlightened person, right? It's like, well, okay. So you have Buddhism. That's like, there's the Buddhist tradition and people doing all these academic things and rituals and stuff like that. But it's like, man, like you can go anywhere in the world and there's like people that Buddha's on their 
dashboards people you can go to a head shop and there's like buddhas everywhere and it's like that that energy is still pervasive almost like it's everywhere it's pervasive even in physical form almost as densely as like a certain plant species it's part of our reality it's part of the even that we physically see or like i was thinking this the other day it's like we went to we just went to a head shop and i think head shops are really interesting because well i'm interested by anything in our culture that is considered um, lesser than that's mm-hmm. like not okay. And that could be like trashy comics or literature, head shops, drug culture. It's like anything that's passed over by, you know, the mainstream culture, like the people who are like watching CNN and like reading the Atlantic and being very literary and all that, like that, that's all boring ass horse shit to me. But the parts that are considered not okay, people from the wrong side of the tracks, you know, it's, that's where you'll get all the information. Mm-hmm. And that that's part of initiation too. You got to go to places that people don't think to look for information, but like we were in a head shop and it's like, you go to a head shop and they've got, they've got Buddha, they've got a, a Egyptian gods, a Sekhmet statue right there. We got mm-hmm. at it. And it's like, um, they're, they're showing you, you know, these are the things people interact with in altered states of consciousness. They're showing you the gods are here right now. And mm-hmm. it's like, I've been walking around the city, there's Tupac art everywhere. I'm like, wow, I realized it's like, oh, like Tupac is in the process of becoming an ascended master. Yep. That sounds like a joke and like ridiculous, but I think that's true. Actually. I do too. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely do. 100%. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what I'm trying to say other than I think that everything is happening now. And I don't mean that in like a be here now, man, kind of way, but just like literally this is God talking to us and it will show you whatever, everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, a a huge part of it is just learning how to pay attention to it. And I always think also, you know, when we're talking about, you know, in magic, we always talk about the great work, like completion of the great work, which you can never truly complete because of the great work is like, you know, striving for perfection in all ways. Like, so that God can express itself through us to its fullest extent. You know, we're trying to perfect ourselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, so that we are a more complete vehicle for God to express more of itself through. And there's always going to be room for improvement in some kind of way. So it's like we we think of magic as just, you know, doing rituals in a dark room or reading books on the occult or whatever it is. But really, pretty much everything you do in this world is it is something that is advancing you towards, you know, being closer to completing the great work, whether it's learning how to do your taxes. You know, it doesn't seem like a particularly magical thing. No, that's what I mean about seeing the world as all these like systems to obsessively learn and master and they're not scary anymore. Yes, absolutely. And it's like all of them that you learn, you're improving yourself in some way. All right. Hello. (laughs) We've switched places. (laughs) All right. No, I'm really uh, grateful again, Damien, for taking the time. Oh, that's, you know, that's what I was just telling people when you were upstairs. That's the same way I felt. I was telling them about how you made the trip, you know, at great personal expense to yourself, you know, time, energy wise, money, everything else to make the trip all the way to Arkansas whenever, you know, I was going through that hearing. And that's that's some traumatic shit, to be honest, you know, having to go. You look you look pretty upset when you came out. It it does something to you. You know, it, it like going back in there. You know, you were talking a while ago about how you've been so many different people. You've lived so many different lives. And I feel the same way, even just like in the 10 years that I've been out, like I've done so many different things. And when I try to remember back to the person I was like during those times, it's like it's, it's literally not the same person. 
So when you feel, did you feel like when you went back into that situation, you were like going back to all yes. that? Yeah, yes. It was almost like being forced into, you know, a skin that isn't yours yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, forced into trying to be a person that you're not. Yeah, you looked uh, not happy yeah. when you came out. That was, uh, yeah, that was a trip too, because it was like, yeah, I think as I mentioned, like we showed up and it was like, like us, um, the I forget his name, but the singer from Lamb of God and like oh, just Randy, Randy, Randy and, Ryan, yeah. and, and kind of just like a bunch of like goths and stuff like that. And there's like dudes out here like preparing for like to go to like, you know, civil war, like just strapped with body armor and like, like ARs. And it's just like, like riot gear. Yes. And it's like, what do you think is going to happen out yes. here? <laughs> well, I think just straight intimidation. I don't think that they even thought anything was going to happen as much as they just, that's exa- they wanted to intimidate people. Yeah. Like they were doing the thing where they were going to form a row and like beat the hell out of everyone and yes. march forward or they were looking like they could do that. I mean, that's like, even in prison, you know, they give lip service to things like, you know, lowering the recidivism rate, stuff like that. But I can't. Did we talk about this the other day? Briefly. Yeah. How like the, they know that the more connections and support you have in the outside world, the less likely you are to come back to prison. So they do everything they can to intimidate and, and make the people that come to see you as uncomfortable as they possibly can to separate you from any kind of support system. Number one, because then they can do every, anything they want to do to you and there are no witnesses. Nobody can do anything about it or anything else. But two is because they just don't want people seeing what goes on inside yeah. the system. If, did you interact with the private prison system at all? I didn't, but Jason Baldwin did. He was okay. in one for a little while. And from what I heard, it was it got so horrific that they actually had to outlaw private prisons in Arkansas. You had guys that had been in there for years and had not even been issued a pair of shoes because they didn't want to cut into the profit margin of the prison. That, that to me, that's that's. I mean, the prince, I already feel this way about the prison system, but that's slavery. It's just modern slavery. The mm-hmm. prison, the private prison system is horrifying. And also like how little people are allowed to know about it. Yes. And at least from my understanding, it's like, you know, once you're in there, it's like you're in the black hole. Like, no, there's no like accountability. I mean, think about the fact that you could have major riots taking place at you know, a dozen prisons at any given time all over the U.S. Nobody out here will ever hear a word about it. There's almost like this agreement between like the prison industrial complex and the media and the political system to not speak about anything going on in there. Number one, it makes it look like, you know, makes them look bad, like they're losing control of the situation or whatever it is. But nobody out here has any clue what's going on inside those walls at any given time. I I would imagine illegal to film or anything like that in there. Yeah. 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 It's the same in... um it always blows my mind. It's like illegal to, f- we're, we're not allowed to know how our food is processed. It's illegal to film in, in, um, slaughterhouses or farms or anything like that, factory farms. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Like I tell me how you feel about this, but I always got the feeling that slavery in the U S didn't exactly end. It just kind of rebranded as the prison system. That's so how do you feel about that's that? That's exactly what happened because prisons have all these contracts Contracts to basically pimp out prison labor, but also contracts with all these big corporations to take advantage of not just the people in prison, but their families also, you know, like like they'll do like on one end of the spectrum, you'll have these companies that 
hire out prison labor to do certain things, you know, like like, say, farms or something where it's they'll bring in prisoners to pick crops or whatever it is. But then you also have these companies that do things like, you know, if you if the prison makes a contract with one company, then that company has a monopoly, like, say, the phone system, for example, whatever phone company they make a contract with in the prison, that is the only phone company there. So mm. they can charge anything they want to charge for phone calls. When I was in prison, wow. a 15 minute phone call to the outside world cost $25. What? 15 minutes for $25. Okay. Who in prison can afford that? There's no yeah. rich people in prison. And once again, not only is it about getting the money, but it's also about, you know, that whole recidivism thing, making it impossible for you to continue to have relationships so, and contacts. So even the state, you know, non-private, the public state wants people in prison for profit. Yes, yes. Lori spent her entire life savings on phone calls with me when I was in prison. And everything she had saved in her entire life up until that time was spent on phone calls. Wow. Yeah, I know like people love to yell about fascism these days, but it's like, you know, it's like you look at the actual definition definition of fascism is the merger of state and corporate power. It's like, well, here you go. Like, yes. this is what we're living in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's... Um, and even like in Arkansas, they don't pay you anything. Different states pay different amounts for prison labor. You know, in, in, in some states, it's like five cents an hour, mm -hmm. literally five, like you get a nickel an hour. In Arkansas, it's it's nothing. Like it's literally slave labor. Like you get nothing. Wow. And they charge you still for everything. If you need to see a doctor or a dentist or anything like that, you get charged for that. So what they do is if you don't have any money, they put that you know, they call it in your books or in your file or whatever it is, so that if anyone in the outside world ever does send you any money, they take it and say, no, you owe us this because you saw a doctor two years ago. Jesus. Are you still working on, I think you were talking about after, after you had that experience, you were working on maybe changing the uh, the laws at the national level. That's what we're we're wanting to hopefully do. Push something through. You know, like right now, what we're saying is all we're asking is to let us do this DNA testing. We're not even asking the state to pay for it. Right. We're saying we'll do like a crowdfunding, crowdsourcing thing, whatever it is. Some way we'll come up with the money. You know, enough people want to see an answer to this case, want, you know, like definitive proof of who exactly did this, that people would be willing to pay for this, this testing just to get the answer once and for all. So it's not going to cost the state anything. All we're saying is get out of the way and let us do this. And they're, they're essentially arguing, well, since you're out of prison now, you no longer have the right to do that. So I'm not the only one in this situation. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things when I was arrested in 93, they couldn't do the same kind of DNA testing that they can do now. So you have people in prison right now who could have DNA testing done that would prove that they're innocent, but the state still fights against it. So what we want to have done is the law changed so that it just says you can do this, whether you are in prison or out, as long as you're willing to take on the expense and not cost the state resources. That would be incredible. I mean, it, it really, it, that, like, just for me, like, being there and witnessing just the environment and the attitude of people, I mean, it was just, it was just so blatantly corrupt. And I mean, it really says it all. If you're, like, going and trying to pay for everything just to have the testing done, uh, and they're giving you, they're basically treating you in the way manner that they did, I mean, it pretty much says it all. Yeah. But do you think, I, I would imagine, 
I mean, do you, do you think basically that they don't want to do that because they don't want to open themselves up to being sued or just getting bad publicity? Yeah, all, all of the above. I think bad publicity, they don't want to be sued. And, and to be honest, I also think they know who did it. Hmm. And I think they don't want that information coming out. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole tangle of bad. Yeah. 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 I think if, you know, keep in mind, a lot of people built careers for themselves off of this case. Mm. You know, they went on to like the judge runs for, you know, a seat on the Arkansas Supreme Court or the the judge during the case went on to become a senator in Arkansas. You know, like a lot of people built careers for themselves off of the publicity that they gained from this case. So if it comes out that not only did you sentence an innocent person to death, two more guys to life in prison without parole, and that you let a child murderer walk the streets free for all these years, not only all of that, but that it was somebody connected to you this yeah. whole time, then there's going to be hell to pay for that. And they know that. You're talking about a lot of lives and careers being unraveled. What's your next step with all that? Right now, we just filed the final appeal. Um Time kind of runs together for me out here now, but it was sometime within the last couple of weeks. Like we're working on this stuff still like almost daily working on this case. So we finally got the appeal filed. All we're doing right now is waiting for the courts to come back and decide whether they're going to hear the case or not. They And, and this is the thing. This is completely unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever been done before. So we don't know what's going to happen. Hmm. They could come back and say, okay, we're going to set a hearing and you're going to have to come to court again and argue in front of us why or why not this should be done. Or they could just come back and say, we read the case. It's blatantly obvious that this should be done. So go ahead and do the testing. Or they could come back and say, nope, we don't have to give you a reason why. We're just saying you're not doing it. Hmm. So, it, I mean, it really, it could be anything. We have no idea what to expect. You know, you would think in a world where someone on the court system had even a shred of morality or integrity or anything else, that this would be a given. Right. But we thought that many times <laughs> over the years in this case, and it just wasn't true. Yeah. Some. Of, I mean, some of, some of the... Between that and some of the things you're talking talking about about the the monopolization of like the the financial exploitation in prison, like the twenty five dollar phone calls, the way they set up the system, it just I think I would hope at least for the the average person, it's really hard to think about being in the mindset of somebody who says that yeah, this is a good idea, mm -hmm. like even to the point where like you can't really say like oh like do the Eichmann thing where you're like oh I was just doing my job. Like this, it's hard to look at that stuff and not just see calculated malevolence. Yes. And yes. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. I believe that 100%. I mean, think about it. Well, I mean, just from a magical perspective, you know, say, you know, we're talking about the energy of place while ago. So you've got a lot of different things that combine that come together to create the energy of a place, you know, like you've got, you know, like natural, like whatever you want to call it, like ley line type energy, like, like I forget what the word is, but like energy that's inherent within the earth itself, mm -hmm. just like chi within our bodies. So you've got that. Then you've got the history. Like you said, sound waves go forever. You know, so you've got the history of everything that happened there, every word that was ever spoken there, all of that energy combines into it. Well, think about the fact that like one of the worst examples 
there was a guy in the cell next to mine that had actually climbed into two old women's window one night and hacked them to death hatchet so that he could steal their social security checks. I was in a super maximum security unit prison with between two and 3,000 people like that. Hmm. Think about the kind of morphic field, the kind of energy that I creates. can think about it, but I'm just, I mean, I, I can't imagine what that well, would be like. Think about what it would, you know, it's like, like attracts like. Sure. So imagine the sort of people it draws to work in that environment, like a magnet. It draws its own kind. We used to say in prison, the only difference between guards and prisoners is they have the keys. One of the... One of the uh, hardest questions, I think, in magic and just spirituality in general, in life in general, is the question of evil. Like, what is evil? Why does it exist? Where does it come from? What are your thoughts on that? The only, you know, this is once again, this is just kind of my own conclusions that I've come to. The way that I usually see it, honestly, I think evil and ignorance are almost synonymous. I think usually when people are doing evil shit, they're doing it out of a state of ignorance, either because, you know, and it could be all different kinds of ignorance. It could be ignorance, you know, like say somebody goes out and kills someone that they don't even know just because they're going to, you know, ransack through their pockets and hope they get $50 or whatever it is. You know, it's ignorance of the fact that like we are one consciousness, mm -hmm. like we may be in separate bodies, but we are one unified consciousness beyond this illusion of duality. Mm -hmm. So they're operating from the state of ignorance that they don't even realize that, you know, it's like Jesus said, whatever you do to other people, you do to me. Like, that's not a metaphor. That's a literal yeah. thing. Yeah. So they're acting from the state of ignorance that they don't even realize that, you know, they're doing something that is harming not only you, but themselves and all of humanity as a whole. Just from, you know, and, and I think that's the case all the way down the line to even when you talk about the most vile people, like the guy crawling in the women's window and hacking them with the hatchet. You know, I think stuff like that, it, it always comes from ignorance in some way. Mm -hmm. Even if it seems like malevolence, like this person has no reasoning for anything they do other than I want to make somebody else's day as fucking miserable as mine is. You know, even that, I think it ultimately comes from a state of ignorance. But that's just, yeah, I, th I thought a lot about that in prison. Yeah. What a... <laughs> That's a, I mean, that's a very Eastern perspective. I forget there's a, in, I think it's Thomas or something like that in, in Sanskrit in India, evil and ignorance are considered the same thing. Mm -hmm. But, and I, and I would agree with you, but then it does seem that there are intelligent evil actors, you know, like there are, there are people who, for whatever reason are choosing, choose somebody just like you or I, who's choosing to be evil yes. intelligently. Yes. And I mean, you could point at people like, I mean, it's hard not to, you know, like obviously people can be like that from ideology. So you can point at like terrorists or um, certain politicians, um, Dick Cheney, I don't know. But um, also you could look at people like, I was just trying to think of an example of that. Like somebody like, you know, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, you know, who's going around and is a, is a serial killer, ritualistic. And mm -hmm. it's just like, or Ted Bundy, like they're people who are reveling in what they're doing. Um, you know, you have people who are intelligent, evil actors and that, that the question of evil is such a theological stumbling block because 
you know, we all hear people who say like, how could God, you know, like, I don't believe in God because how could God permit this to exist? And different spiritual traditions have different answers to this and some are more satisfying than others, but I don't think any are ultimately fully satisfying. No. And, you know, so like if we just take the phenomenon of, and I mean, and this, this goes all the way down to legislation. I mean, it's kind of like, I think the essence of, if I really think about the essence of liberalism versus conservatism, it's an argument of, um, nurture versus nature, where people who are liberals will say if people do bad things, it's because of socioeconomic factors, it's because how they were raised, they are, you know, they, they various uh, chemical factors that they didn't get what they needed. But that argument also breaks, and also the, the conservative argument, everyone is just born a certain way. That's obviously horseshit because people change all the time. Mm -hmm. But the, both, you know, like it's kind of, these arguments break down when you see somebody who is obviously intelligent and is int intelligently evil that i mean i can i see exactly what you're saying but one other thing that i would also throw in is like when you're talking about on the end of the spectrum that includes people like say richard ramirez the night stalker stuff like that honestly like when, when i was in prison one of the things that kind of blew my mind is like if if you get your idea of like who's in prison and what they're like from media sources, whether it's movies or books or whatever, you go in thinking, you know, prison is full of like all these Hannibal Lecter types, you know, <laughs> okay. these super genius, you know, just, right. but when you get in there, you real one of the things I realized pretty quick was the average death row inmate has an IQ of 85 okay. and that's average, okay. you know, so you've got a lot of people who are lower than that. So it's like, even when you're talking about intelligent, it's like there's intelligence and there's intelligence and sometimes those guys might seem like they're intelligent when you see them for like a 30 second news clip or something yeah. like that. But when you're dealing with them in real life, you realize you're dealing with people who just aren't hooked up right. I see. Like there's stuff misfiring in there and all, all kinds of stuff like that. So I, I, I don't think you can always take those people as highly intelligent. But, you know, once again, I don't know. You know, I think I used to think a lot about this stuff. But it's hard to remember that person now. Yeah. And and now I don't really think about. It's not fun to think about. Yeah. You know, it's like somebody asked me one time, they're like, why aren't you pissed off about being in prison? And it's like, I don't have time. Yeah. You know, it's like I can either sit around and think about like the things that people did to me that were fucked up and I can get angry about it or whatever, or I could be going and eating some ice cream. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to choose the ice cream, yeah. you know? I, I, and it's, it's, it was kind of so far back there now. And like you said, you go through all of these incarnations in a single lifetime, which I also think is, is I think magic is part of that. I don't think everybody does that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I heard somebody, somebody told me one time that like magic even for all its flaws and and the stuff that can go wrong in it, magic aims to do to your consciousness in a single lifetime what some of these other traditions aim for over multiple lifetimes. I read it. This was just on an old website, but this is an old Thalamite from the 60s. Uh, what was his name? Frater Shiva wrote some really interesting books. Um, he said that um, he had kind of a theosophical bent on things, but he said, when you become a magician, what you're actually doing is it's like most people are kind of going on this evolutionary spiral where it's like lifetime after lifetime after mm -hmm. lifetime for a long time. If you believe in that model and I do, um, just from my own experiences and corroborating certain things. Um, and I actually think it's linear, uh, actually, but, um, 
when you become a magician, when you take on the great work, whatever that in a true sense, whatever that actually means, um, you're volunteering to accelerate your karma. Mm-hmm. So you have to burn a fuck ton in, in, uh, one lifetime. Yes. And I think part of that process, like a side effect of that process, it's exactly what you were describing. You look back at yourself and, and it's like you went through multiple lifetimes in one lifetime. Mm-hmm. You were many different people in one lifetime because of that acceleration. Yeah. And there's awesome things about that, but there's also very sad things about that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't in my life anymore. You know, or, or, or jobs that I liked or people that I were, that I liked, that or I wanted places, to be. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, um, and I think in, in that, that, that's one thing that's made me really appreciate. I think the people who maintain the people who are, are in your life throughout multiple of those incarnations are obviously like, that's who you're meant to be spending. Uh, yeah. your, that's, that's who you're, you're, you know, your whatever you want to call it, your soul group or yeah. whatever. Those are the people that truly care about you, you know, because yeah. everyone else will be off in another movie. Even then, though, it's kind of like, you know, even when the person does stick with you and you've been together, you know, like all those years or whatever, it's so bizarre even realizing that it's like you don't have exactly the same relationship. Like even Mm -hmm. it's not like you went through all of these lifetimes and they went through all of these lifetimes, but it's like the relationship itself went through like several different incarnations. Yeah. You know, like maybe maybe one time it's have to if it's healthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it's not going to stagnate. Otherwise, you're just going to be pretending to be somebody. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think in certain ways, all of these spiritual truths are like literal truths. Like on on some level, I think we are reborn. We reincarnate. Like literally, you know, are born into a new body at, at points during our times. But I also think even if you don't accept that, you can still look at it like through the lens of metaphor in that you experience that even in this life, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like you, yeah. you are reborn over and over and over. Yeah. I used to call it cremate and reincarnate yeah. where I just burn down a life and end up in a different yes. one. Now that's a much more painful process than it was in, in when I was younger. Why do you think that is other than because I'm age? older? Because I'm yeah. older. Because <laughs> after a certain time you're playing for keeps, you know what I yes. mean? It's like you have less time to, you know, yeah. I, you don't want to be starting over at 40, although I've had to do it because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, but that's why, you know, I think most people like they, they, they have one groove and they work it. It's also tough professionally because, you know, most people pick one thing that they do and that's their whole career. Mm-hmm. And you look at any of these people, like you look at people like, I think this is one of the ways you can tell a real magician. You look at somebody like Jen or you look at somebody like Crowley, like, look at all the crazy shit that Crowley did. And he's like, I'm a painter. Now I'm a world traveler. Now I'm a poet. Now a mountain I'm a climber. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you could see that he was doing it really fast. Jen, I mean, God, you know, one of the things Jen said is you should never run out of people to be. And Jen was like somebody new every day, practically. Yes. And uh, yeah, like it was often very disorienting. So, um, you know, that's how you can tell it's, but it's like, you get a much broader experience of life. I think one thing Peter Carroll said once, this is, a, I think a tongue in cheek statement, but he said, a magician is somebody that sells their soul for the opportunity of a wider experience of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if, you know, what he meant by that yeah. is if you don't believe that you actually have a core identity, then you can be as many people as you want. It frees you up. 
Yes. Uh, the, the word, like what you were just describing, like for all these different people, like Jen or whoever it is, I always think, I mean, I, I agree 100%. That's one of the ways you can tell people that are really doing this work is because they become to some extent or another polymathic. Yeah. You know, like they're yeah. going to have their fingers in a bunch of different I'm like that for sure. Yeah. Well, I think part of what magic does is it forces all the different aspects of you to grow. You know, like intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, like all these different things, it's forcing you to grow in all these different ways. So you're going to end up exploring a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Da Vinci, Athanasius Kircher, Crowley. John, John D. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I yeah. think that's one of the telltale signs. Like you can tell when somebody's really doing this work because they're going to be doing a bunch of shit. And in sometimes in some ways, it doesn't even look like it's connected in any way. It looks like it's all over the map. Yeah. I mean, like there, I do all this shit. I don't even know why I'm doing it or why it's connected, but then it comes clear like several years later what I was up to. Yes. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's like when you do like, I think it's often disorienting for people because it's like, again there's like magic and then there's magic there's magic that's your life and then there's magic that you do like where you're playing with toys on an altar mm -hmm. and um they're both important because one is a model you know a, a proper altar is a model of your universe and it's basic sympathetic magic if you change the model it changes the thing that it models and um but you know, and I've thought about this over, over the years. It's like, you know, like one of the things you do when you're doing the golden dawn tradition, for instance, is you make your own magical tools. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is something that just repeats throughout my life. It's like, yeah, I made some magical tools with like, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, some cheap crap from Michael's and like acrylic paints and cardboard and all of that paper, like colored paper, et cetera. Um, but you know, the, I have magical tools that I spent a year making uh like every day things like that and then but then that became that's a metaphor for life and i think one of the you were asking at the beginning of this about why why does magic produce ego inflation and i think that one of the you know the most important what things are saying is never what they're saying there's always what is in the thing that is implied by something is always the most important message and the thing that magic implies by its very existence which is why i still use the word magic i mean so many people like jen said oh you should come up with a different word yes and i tried and it's like you know like neuro-linguistic reality engineering sounds like crap you know or like whatever like mm -hmm. you know and it's like nothing's like the, just the word magic itself when you say it it breaks reality it implies it has a clown aspect to it it automatically implies that this person is not necessarily sane or uh -huh. serious uh -huh. which is good right because um you know it's good I, in my opinion it's good it, may, it feels a little dangerous or crazy which is good because you should be on edge um but also it implies a break in reality and the thing that i was going to say about the magical tools it's like yeah you start off making magical tools but then the next thing you know it's like you're building your life and magic implies magic implies that you have the power not someone else which is what causes ego inflation as a teaching tool it also implies that you have to do things yourself it's diy spirituality mm -hmm. so like building a wand became for me building a business building um a podcast building a podcast writing a book you know and it's like maybe i don't know maybe you've experienced this too or it's like for me every time that 
I always get pushback on doing things myself, always. Like if I try to do something with somebody, like collaborate or work for work for someone else for a company or like try to go like the traditional route of getting somebody to publish something, sometimes it works, but usually, or even like hire someone to do something for me, I always get thrown back on doing it myself because the universe is like, no, you do it. And then when I learn how to do it, now it's easy for me. Yes. I get that exact same thing. I'll come up with an idea sometimes and I'll think this is like a million dollar idea. This could be an amazing experience, whatever. And, you know, you introduce it to other people and nobody wants it. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it until you put the work in yourself and they start to see you being successful at it. Then they're like, okay, now I want to. Yeah. Let me get a piece of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. After you've already done it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that's like, um, just kind of way things work, the way things that uh, kind of the way things work. But I also think that it's part of being a magician. It's like the reality is forcing you back. You know, a magician, the, the magician card in the tarot is a guy at a, at a table, like working on some tools. Uh, and that's kind of what it is, I think. So I'm, I'm always wondering, it's like, is, am I always kind of like doomed to have to do everything myself because that's just what the path of magic is? I don't know. So far it seems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't come any, across anything that's contradicted that so far. It's pretty yeah. true. Funny, huh? Yeah. Well, I don't know how much you want to say in public, but you, you have some future plans about where you want to take things. I knew, you know, I like really, this is probably going to end up being one of the last podcasts I ever do. I, I'm going to do, you know, just, I think three more after this, just because I had already said that I would do them. And it's like, whenever I give my word, I try to the best of my ability to keep it. But I just feel, feel like I'm, you know, that, that incarnation thing again, you know, like going into different lifetimes and, and, you know, like you were saying, doing so many things, I've done so many different things since I've been out. Like for a short while I was a tattoo artist. Mm -hmm. And then for a short while I was a visual artist and doing art shows. And then for a short while, well, not even a short while, it was like two years. I I went around doing, you know, like a, a speaking tour where I was speaking at like criminal justice classes and law schools and stuff like this. It's like, I've lived all of these lives But eventually in all of them, I kind of reached a point where I felt like, okay, I've done everything that I wanted to do in this area. And if I keep doing it, I'm just going to be repeating myself or I'm going to be stagnating or something. It's like, I know it's time to move into a new world Mm -hmm. or to start becoming a different person. And that's kind of how I feel right now. Like I do not have... You know, it's like they say, never name the well from which you will not drink. So I (laughs) could come out and say, I'm never going to write another book on magic and something would make me eat my words tomorrow. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm really wary of doing that because I've experienced that in my life, yeah. you know, naming the well from which you will not drink. And then life forces you to drink from it in some way or some unforeseen thing happens. But I really do not see myself writing any more books on magic. I feel mm. like I may not have said everything that I know, but I said enough where if someone is really doing this work and they're really hungry, I feel like I simplified enough of it where they'll be able to to pick up on it and and keep going into the future. Okay. So I really just don't see myself. I'll probably always do like Patreon, like in a, you know, like a quiet private way like this, but I don't plan on doing any kind of 
public classes hmm. or retreats. I, my last retreat is going to be in October. And the reason I wanted to do this one last one is because I'm doing it with someone that I actually learned a great deal about magic, like not just like in a teaching sense, but just in my relationship with this person. You know, it was like ever like when we met, we met in this w bizarre way, but we never just hung out and chit chatted or, you know, done things that normal people do. Like it's a, it's a kind of a crazy story, but every single time we came together in any way, it was like I would leave that meeting with like a piece of something I needed to send me off in this whole new trajectory. Hmm. And it, it's almost like anytime we come together and do something together, something amazing comes from it okay. in some way, whether it's just internal growth or, or something. So it was like, I wanted to do one last retreat with this guy, with this person, you know, just because it was something we had always kind of talked about, but I don't see myself doing retreats anymore. I'm not going to be talking about magic publicly, publicly anymore. And to be honest, I'm also, I'm probably just not going to be talking period, hmm. you know, not even just about magic, but like even about the case, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you have to kind of keep doing interviews about that stuff just to keep the state's focus on mm, it, you know, okay. like, but at the same time, it, it really does re-traumatize you. It, yeah. It's traumatic going back to it. And it's also, you're usually doing it with people that are not your friends, people that only want like some sort of sound bite. So it's almost like you're being probed. You know, it's like, imagine the most horrendous fucking thing that ever happened to you in your life. And then you've got people probing you because they yeah. want to get you to say something that's going to give them a 10 second sound bite for the evening news. It, 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 it damages you mm. like it hurts you mentally and emotionally. And the way I feel about it now, it's like, I want this DNA testing done. I want my name cleared, but it should happen because it's the right thing to do. It should happen because anybody with any degree of integrity or morality would want yeah. to know who killed three kids, yeah. not because I have to get up every day and talk about it to the you know local Arkansas news stations or whatever. So I feel like I'm, I'm done with that once and for all. I feel like I've done everything I can to set that in motion and hopefully it'll come to fruition. But if I keep keep on doing it, I'm hurting myself okay. doing it, going back to that stuff over and over. And I feel like with magic like, like out in the world, I'm not looking for a new audience. And, you know, we were talking about how about the publishing industry and the magic industry and how so much of it is being a salesman, mm -hmm. you know, like you have to sell people. I don't want to sell people things anymore. So I just feel like, honestly, it's time to start doing, it's time to start doing something else. And for me right now at this time of my life, this is bizarre, but for me, my whole life, two things have obsessed me. Magic. Mm -hmm. You know, like I discovered magic for the first time when I was like seven years old. I didn't know what the hell it was. You know, I came across like an old ad in the back of a tabloid that was like, you know, want to learn magic? Send five ninety nine <laughs> off to this and we'll send you a book that'll tell you the secrets of the universe. Nice. You know, for all I knew, it could have been like Harry Potter shit. <laughs> but whenever I read that, it was like, if that's possible, why does anything else matter? That's yeah, I felt what I the same wondering. way. Yeah. Well, and the other thing for me was, uh, was martial arts. You know, for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I thought it was like the most, like, if you could do this stuff, you're doing like the most, that's like the, 
physical pinnacle of everything in this world. If you could, you know, do like a spinning back kick or something, then you're like right next door to a superhero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So magic and martial arts were always the things I was obsessed about. So right now I'm kind of not putting as much energy into, you know, like writing or, you know, doing tours or whatever, talking about magic. It's all going into martial arts because I really do feel like what I want to do with my life now, that's what I want to focus on. Okay. And, and not just for myself, but also like, like introducing other people to it, hmm. you know, like at, at, at least assisting as a teacher to help teach people this just because it's. It's strange. Like, like I say, those have been my only two obsessions and I realize I'm rambling about this, mm -mm. but when I was, a, when I was learning how to do certain rituals and magic, you know, like say the Rose Cross ritual and you're, you're trying to make sense of the diagrams of it and you're trying to follow the directions and it's like, okay, you start in this corner over here and then you go to this corner and it's like, you're trying to figure it out, puzzle it out as you go along. And there would be things that I just couldn't get like the Rose Cross ritual. Like I would be like, How, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like I can't visualize this. I can't picture this. And I would get obsessed with it. And it was all I could think about. And then suddenly something would click, like with the Rose Cross ritual, something clicked one day and I was like, oh, that's it. I got it. I can, I can see how it's supposed to be done. Whenever that happened, I jerked mm -hmm. and woke myself up because I realized I was asleep. I had gotten so obsessed with it. Like, focused on it so intently and exclusively that it had even saturated my dreams. Hmm. Like I was doing it in my sleep. The only other thing I've ever found in my life that that was the case for was martial arts. Like I'll go to sleep now at night and all night long, I just dream that I'm kicking stuff. Really. But it's like, that's the, that's the other thing as goofy as it sounds that I'm passionate. And, and the other thing also about it that I like is when you go into that place, when you go into a martial arts studio, there's no politics. Yeah. There's no religion. Yeah. In some ways, you know, you were talking about like, like the remorse or the regret or the, the way you miss things like from the past or whatever. It's the only place I've ever found where it feels like it is a window into a simpler time in the past. When you go into that dojo, it feels like you live in the 80s. Hmm. That's yeah, what yeah, it feels yeah. like to me. It feels like you found a window back into the 80s. That's what we all want. Just yes. a window back to the 80s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yes. I agree with you. I think that's one of the reasons, maybe that's one of the reasons why they've become so popular again. I think um, other than the fact it's like, yeah, that you were, you were talking about, about ninjas the other day. It's like every kid in the 80s wanted to be a ninja. Yes. You know, like that was the Did ultimate. you have throwing stars? Uh, ones that I made myself out of cardboard. I, I used think. to buy them from the flea market. Oh, nice. There were old people selling throwing stars <laughs> in the flea market when I was a kid. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. They were like my prized possessions. That's great. They were actually sharp and everything? No. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. You could maybe get them to stick in a dartboard, okay. you know, if you threw it at that. Yeah, throwing star was the ultimate. It's like, and ninjas know magic too, and they can become yes. invisible. That's a big deal. Yes. Um, yeah, I think martial arts is, uh, there really aren't that many places in our culture um, where people can even come together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I. this is, I think, one of the loneliest times in human history, despite the fact that we're all connected. And it's why I love doing 
live streaming or, or podcasting because it's like it's the kind of the one saving grace of the internet where it's a way that people actually can come and because i don't think people had long conversations prior to no. this type of even in the 80s um maybe in bars you know but yeah. it wasn't about deep stuff probably. there's something magical about bars yeah as crazy as that sounds no not at all like some of the most influential conversations i've ever had in my life took place on a bar stool okay it's it's weird. It's like something about the environment or the energy of a bar makes it conducive to exchanging information and not even just mm. about magic. I mean, think about things like, you know, one of the places I love the most in New York was the Francis Tavern down I there. I don't in, know that one. It's, it's down in, in uh, the financial district. It was where George Washington used to meet with his troops whenever they were plotting the revolution. Mm. So it's been there, you know, since the dawn of this country, like all these, you know, influential people used to meet there to exchange all these ideas. You know, that tavern, men sitting at this tavern in New York City is what led to the birth of the United States. Wow. Was that a Masonic thing? Was that involved at all? It, it probably was. Uh, that place, the Francis Tavern is not really so masonic but i did this pilgrimage one time with one of the guys i saw his name go through on here andrew reyes we we went to uh washington dc and you know a few other places new york where we went to i mean people don't realize how heavily george washington was into masonic oh, yeah. stuff yeah I mean, it was a lot of presidents have been. It, it was generally the good ones. Too. I had a vague idea, but it was kind of mind blowing, even for me. Like mm -hmm. we went to see, you know, like his ceremonial trowel. Mm -hmm. You know, like in magic, we have wands and pinnacles and stuff like this. The Masons, they have their their I've, trowel. I've, I've, got, I've got a trowel. Okay, they still had George Washington's <laughs> trowel, and they said every time they like built some important building in Washington, D.C. that was going to be connected to the government in some way, they still use George Washington's wow. trowel when they're laying the foundation. Hmm. I have another wow. friend of mine that is uh, a Mason was talking about George Washington's Bible, the Bible he swore in on. When Don't he they have that at St. John's yes, Lodge in, exactly. in New York. That's the yeah. lodge he's a yeah. member of. So that's, that I've heard really good things about that lodge. I was going to join that one, but then I left New York. That's, so. that's the one he's yeah. a member of, but he that's, was telling heard, me yeah. like they loan that Bible out to places sometimes. Like for example, some other presidents have sworn in on mm. it or they'll put it on display in certain places. But whenever they do, uh, they have to have some of the Masons from that lodge travel with it and even sleep in the same room with it. Yeah. And he said, universally, everybody who sleeps in the room with that thing has all kinds of crazy dreams, wow. like about George Washington and some stuff that doesn't seem to be connected at all. But it really does. It's like that incubation thing where people used to go sleep in temples or what have you to try yeah. to be affected. Yeah. He said that Bible does that to you. If you sleep in the room with it, like it definitely affects your dreams. Masonry is a big deal. I, I think that it's uh, I mean, it's dying. It's dying out. But that is um, becoming a Mason for me was pretty mind blowing, not because it's a magical order, because it's really not. But just you realize that there actually is, I mean, it is and it isn't. It is a magical system in a sense, but it's not like people are generally doing magic. Right. They're not doing magic in lodge or anything like that, but it is a system. It's a spiritual system. And you see that America was the manifestation of a, of a magical system that came out of the enlightenment that came out of hermeticism mm -hmm. this is a magical country and there is this thing masonry that still exists it is like the esoteric backbone of the country yeah and it's dying out because the masons are dying unfortunately yeah. but literally but 
that's another place that's like, you know, people used to belong to Masonic lodges or like in the heyday of the OTO and the Golden Dawn and things like that. You know, the Feral House put a book out about this prior to TV. It was like almost everyone in America was in some form of fraternal organization, Mm -hmm. even if it was like the Elks Lodge or Mm -hmm. something like that. And so places where people, whether it's bars or you know, Starbucks really wanted to be a place like this, but it's kind of not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, theoretically coffee shops, although I, I don't, they're just loud in my opinion. Yeah. But, um, it's not the same vibe at mm-hmm. all. But martial arts, you know, also martial arts is like, you know, it's, a. Uh, you can actually get physical contact with people and that's shot. If you really think about it, physical contact with other human beings, particularly after COVID is shockingly rare. Mm-hmm. And it is that, and that is, uh, I, it's got to be unimaginably bad for people. I see so many other things that like, you know, are just relatable or comparable or, or however you want to say it to magic, you know, like even the grade system of magic is mirrored in like the belt system of, of yeah. martial arts. Like I see so many like reflections and connections that it's crazy. And that's one of the things I think that makes me so obsessed about it or passionate about it is I see that, you know, when we think of these things, we tend to think of them now as almost, it's just like, like self-defense or something like that. And yeah, it can be used for stuff like that, but like the core of it, what it's really about in its truest sense is is self-transformation. Like it's like an alchemical process. Like when you move through a system of martial arts, you are going to be a different person from grade to grade, just like in magic, you're going to be a different person if you're doing it correctly from grade to grade. So I see that there is tremendous opportunity for like, self-improvement, making making progress on the path of completion of the great work, all of those things. I see those things just as inherent in martial arts now as as I've always saw them in magic. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting when you really like look at the Eastern traditions too. I mean, a lot of martial arts go back to like basically all the Eastern traditions go back to India and so does martial arts through Bodhidharma and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it all, it all kind of defaults back to some version of the chakra system. And they all seem to, if you look at martial, whether it's martial arts or the Eastern magical systems, whether it's Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, Hindu Tantra, you know, all these things, they're all running on the same basic operating system. Mm -hmm. So they're all pretty interchangeable, which is super awesome. Yeah. Yes. And on that note, as much as I hate to, okay. I should probably All right. this has wrap been, up. It's been a long podcast. And we want to thank you guys. We didn't lose many people at all. We did not lose many people. Thank you guys for sticking with us through this whole thing. We were on here for almost two and a half Oh, wow. It felt like a two and a half minutes. Yeah. Excellent. So I just want to say thank you guys for being with us today, for joining us. We hope y'all got something out of this. And make sure to check out Jason's podcast. It'll be out in about a week or so. Um, it's called Ultra Culture with Jason Live on wherever you get podcasts. There you go. Ultra Culture with Jason Live. Very good. All right, guys. Love y'all. And I'll talk to you in a couple of days or so. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
And of course, you can check him out at his Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Damien Eccles, where he creates magic and art. And of course, check out magic.me, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where me and an ever-expanding faculty of teachers will teach you literally every single angle of magic, mysticism, meditation, and lots, lots more. That is at magic.me, www.magic.me. All right. Lots of love. Hang in there and I will see you in class.